Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. says that we are live. Hello and welcome to Critical Witness. This is conversation number five. We've got Dr. Neil Shenvey with us tonight and it might be a bit of a long chat so get yourselves comfortable Uh, and if you're listening to this uh, a little bit later on welcome and thanks for joining in. Uh, My name's Phil and uh, I co-host this with Dan. We're mates to go back to uni. You can find out all about us on our most recent video uh, where we introduce ourselves this evening is all about uh, talking to Dr. Shenvi and, and finding out more about him. And so we're going to get straight into it. If you're watching live, feel free to drop some questions in, engage with the conversation. Let us know if you can hear us and how everything's going. And um, also feel free to tell us where you're, you're watching from, because this is a cross the pond conversation. And hopefully what we find out today will be helpful for both sides of the pond and uh, the church and, and wider context. So thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Shenvi. Are you happy being called Neil? Is that... You can we... call me Neil, yes. Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. Um, so tell us a, a little bit about yourself. Uh, some people might know who you are uh, from having seen that you've tweeted it out and, and things like that. But um, give us a little bit of, of background. Uh, let's start with how, how did you become a Christian? Sure. So I grew up in a very loving and moral household in the States, uh, but not, I was not raised in a Christian family. I went off to college, kind of was spiritual, but not religious. It did, knew very little about uh, Christianity. But interestingly, in my sophomore year in college, I think it was sophomore, maybe freshman year, there was a book table in front of my eating, like my eating, eating hall. And, um, they were passing out free books. It was a campus ministry and the books were mere Christianity, the screw tape letters. I think the Bible was the three books. And I, I was amazed. I was like, these are free books. And I, and they said, yeah. And I said, I can just have them. They said, yeah. And I was like, yoink. So I grabbed the two books by CS Lewis. They just left the Bible and like, these guys are suckers. Like, I'm not going to take their Bible, but I'll take their free books. And that was, I think so either freshman or sophomore year, but, I probably read the screw tape letters 20 times before I became a Christian because I don't know, it was, it was, it was fascinating to me because I read it and I said, he knows what's going on in my head. How does he know that? It's so full of wisdom and it's so creative. It's a great book, but I couldn't put it down. And I knew a little bit about Christianity. I kind of, I kind of at some point wished it were true, but I said, I, I can't believe it. I took a class in college, my junior year, I think, uh, called the introduction to early Christianity and New Testament. We, we used Bart Ehrman's textbook. He's a very well-known agnostic skeptic. And the, we had a guest lecture by, um, Elaine Pagels. If you know who she is, she's a very prominent scholar of the, of the Gnostic gospels. So it was a very much a secular course. And they taught us a very secular narrative about Christianity and how, 
Jesus was sort of a wandering itinerant rabbi, but not a, not you know not the son of God by any means. It was a fairly, this is at Princeton, so it was very secular, of course. And I learned all that, and at least it gave me a background to understanding that Christianity had at least a historical figure at the core. Of course, there's all of this mythological accretion, and the Gospels aren't really reliable, and miracles didn't really happen, but it's a real person. So I knew that much. And later then, my senior year, I met my future wife, Christina, who was a Christian. And again, it would have been very convenient for me to become a Christian. So I believed in God at that point. I always had believed in a God. And I was, I, I would pray and I'd said, you know, it would be great. I'd love to be a Christian. It'd be convenient because I could then marry this girl, but because she wouldn't, she's like, I can't marry you. You're not a believer. And I just couldn't, I was like, but I can't believe this. So then we actually ended up dating, which is a dangerous idea. I always say, don't, it's going to be very tricky, but um, we began dating and then we ended up going to the same graduate school. And I was like, well, I can compromise on this whole Jesus thing. I love this woman. I, I, she's great. And I'll compromise. I'll, I'll go to church with her. That was a bad move because there at our church in Berkeley, I was exposed to the gospel and it really challenged me because I realized the people at my church were smart. I couldn't write them off as, you know, on, on intellectuals, my, my, my cosmology professor sang in the choir. He's a really renowned cosmologist. So I had to actually confront the idea that Christianity might actually be objectively true. And I didn't like it. And so that, and, but I had to wrestle. I finally had to actually say, what if it is true? I can't just write it off. And I remember the night when I became a Christian, just crying and saying to Christina, you know, how can all these things be true? How could there be a hell? How could a loving God send people to hell? How could there be punishment? Uh, and she didn't, she said, I don't know all the answers. And that shocked me because until then I'd kind of built a God that I could understand fully. I'd created my own God. And when you do that, you always understand God because he's a reflection of you. I, I guess I'm not, I don't think I realized it then at the moment, but she was showing me that the real God is not a thing that we create. And so because of that, there'll be things we don't understand about him. And so, and, and so I wanted to argue, I wanted to say, well, I can show you why that God is not good or that. God. But when she just said, well, actually you don't have to have all the answers, right. For it to be real. It's like, I don't understand all of cosmology or all of quantum mechanics to know it's true. Well, in the same way, I had to—I couldn't object anymore. I said, either I'm going to follow this message, or, or I said, I said or, or I'm not going to. And so I, I remember that night saying to God, I don't even know who you are, really. But if Jesus is your son, I'll follow him. That was like the sort of the bare minimum, right? In terms of the mustard right. seed of faith. Just not even saying, I confess that thou art the Christ, the son of God. Mm -hmm. I was just saying, look, I believe there's a God. And I've heard this message that I need a rescue. I you know I'd read C.S. Lewis. So I knew the message was I'm a sinner who needs a rescuer. And I don't even know if that's Jesus, but I'm will if it is, I really truly am willing to follow him. And I think that was the end. You don't know exactly when necessarily you became a Christian, but but that's when things changed. And so I got plugged into a really good Bible study. I got turned on to Kim Tim Keller's sermons and learned a lot from him. So uh, from that point that I was really discipled, but I think that's the 
turning point. Amazingly, you know, you think, man, your theology was really weak. And, and it was, I'm not denying that. But if you ask me, when did it happen? That that's when it changed. Just that little confession that I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. I'm willing mm -hmm. to follow was the beginning of me following. Uh, well, you're in good company with uh, two Tim Keller fans here. So um, <laughs> no, it's, it's good to hear of another person that has found his teachings really helpful with their faith. So from that point, so that was that, you said there was in Princeton that you had that course. Whereabouts in your degrees? <laughs> right, yeah. So I, so I graduated Princeton in 2001, and I became a believer that in the – it was right before September 11th. I remember that because I remember praying with Christina the day that it happened. Well, I, I wouldn't have done that if I had not already hmm. you know, become a Christian. So, yeah, probably just like July or August, September or 2001. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think most people remember where they were on two th uh, <laughs> September 11, don't they? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even I do as a, a Brit that was in Papua New Guinea, I still remember <laughs> where, where I was at that point in time. Um, so you, you've then become a Christian after Princeton. Where did you, where did so your I in, career? I was in Berkeley uh, and got a PhD. We both got PhDs in chemistry. I am a theoretical chemist. She that would do a PhD in chemical biology. Then she went to medical school at Yale. I did a postdoc at Yale. And then we moved to North Carolina in 2010, where I did research at Duke and she became a um, resident and now a professor at UNC, um, okay. University of North Carolina. Fun, fun fact, one of my brothers was uh, did a placement for physics, uh, medical physics at Duke University oh, okay. for, for a year. <laughs> yeah. So so I know a little bit uh, of, of North Carolina. Got a few friends there. Sorry, Dan, go for it. That's okay. No, so, so Neil, you, you were saying that, that sort of when you became a Christian, you sort of... Um, you sort of accepted that you didn't necessarily need all the, all the answers to, uh, to follow Christ. So when did you start sort of exploring some of those uh, those questions in a bit more detail in regard to sort of apologetics and thing and things like that. So how, how did that kind of kind of get started? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think so I was a theoretical chemistry PhD. And interestingly, the science fields, even at Berkeley, Berkeley is a very secular place. But even there, the graduate Christian fellowship was largely scientists. Um, and, and chemistry, for whatever reason, seemed like the sweet spot to, you know, biology, <laughs> you, you got evolution issues, physics, you got uh, sort of naturalism issues. That, but, but chemistry seemed like a, really a place where Christians were not challenged by much in terms of their scholarship. You just chemistry is very experimental. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm a theorist, but but, but even then, it just uh I didn't find the environment at all inimical to Christianity. Um, and then, so, so no one ever had, I never had to you know, defend my faith within my department or anything. I taught, I had really great conversations with my colleagues and that's always been the case in, again, theoretical chemistry, for whatever reason, there are actually a lot of Christians, even evangelical Christians within that field. But I remember it was sometime in my time at Berkeley that I got connected to a group of students who were trying to start an apologetics ministry or group 
that was engaging atheists. So they, so they really wanted to um, fix, to have dialogue with the atheist group at Berkeley. And so I got involved with them. I remember having coffee or something with the president of the, I think they were called SANE, the Students for a Non-Religious Ethos. It might be Yale or it might be Berkeley, I don't remember which one, but but they there was an atheist group on campus and we're talking and this president said, you know, I just, I just need one example, one example of a miracle happening. And if I had that, then I could believe that God exists just one time. I said, well, what do you mean miracle? It's one time that the laws of physics broke down and that clearly something inexplicable happened. And then I, that would be enough for me to believe that God could exist. So I sat there, I said, well, wait a minute, what about the big bang? It's, we have literally no idea exactly what happened then. It, it, we don't know what caused it. We did, it from the laws of physics break down. Wasn't that a good example? And he sat there and he said, huh. <laughs> and I, I hadn't read anything at this point. I hadn't read, you know, I think I, think I may, I read C.S. Lewis, right? And I may have read like Lee Strobel's Case for Christ at that point or something, but I'd never put much thought into this. That was just kind of an off the cuff, throwaway answer. Hmm. And it kind of floored him. And I remember thinking at that point, I thought to myself, is it that easy? I mean, really? This is the president of the atheist student group. And yet he did, he never even considered the idea that the big bang would be something outside of the laws of physics. So <laughs> that, so that made me realize, huh, I wonder if I could actually start doing this as a hobby, or I wonder if people just don't have the information. There are all these good answers and good questions out there. They're not just, they're just not asking them. And then that really, so I began to be interested in apologetics. And then when I moved to Yale, my postdoc, I got an email at some point when I was at Yale from a friend of mine from high school who said, hey, are you still all religious? Because I have a friend who will talk you out of all that nonsense. And so you uh -huh. should come on his blog. So I, this, I joined this guy's blog and he'd actually gone to Yale as an undergraduate. I went to his blog and we agreed to read books the other person had picked and then to discuss them on his blog. So he gave me a book called uh, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man by Robert Price, who's a mm -hmm. Jesus mythicist. And I read this book and I heard someone snicker because, yeah, I read this book and I remember uh, quoting passages from it to Christina and us just in tears laughing at how insane the book was. And this is a book that had been given to me as like the, the number one best book to debunk my faith. But he says just crazy wild stuff. I mean, I, so, and it's like, I mean, it, it really is the level of a conspiracy theory in, in the way he frames these discussions. So he's way out there on the lunatic fringe of, I won't even put, say he's on the spectrum of New Testament scholarship. He's just off the spectrum. But so then, I, but that's how I got, again, I got, re-energized in terms of reading atheist books. That was a big thing that I think I've tried to do is that I really try to read extensively from the other side. I, mm. I, people always recommend books to me from Christians or conservatives. I mean, I'm politically conservative, but I, I will say, look, I, I already believe that stuff, right? Mm. I, I don't want to hear people telling me what I already believe to be true. I want to hear the best arguments from the other side. So I really try to seek out books that are written by atheists or by uh, agnostics or by critical theorists to hear the best arguments that they have. And to not, not, I don't want to hear their arguments summarized by a Christian. 
I want to hear their arguments. And, and I've tried to do that both with atheism and then recently, more recently with critical theory, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit. I, I, I like that because that, that's something that I encourage, that I do, my, I practice myself, even though I acknowledge it's incredibly uncomfortable. And I think that's probably why so few, few, few people do it. Because when you have your own sort of confirmation bias, it's very satisfying to read books that sort of reinforce what you already believe. It's so uncomfortable to sit down and read a book that's really tearing, you know, some of the, or at least attempting to tear some of the sort of fundamental underpinning, you know, principles of, 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 your, of your belief. Mm. Um, but, it's, but it's such a valuable thing to, to do. And I know me and Phil have talked a lot about this in regards to apologetics and what exactly is the role of apologetics um, sort of in Christianity. So I think, um, I think I'm think i probably right in assuming this, Phil, we're probably inclined to be more critical of, of apologetics ministries mm-hmm. um, where the sole purpose is someone setting themselves up as an apologist, which is often completely separate from evangelism. Mm-hmm. Um, but then sometimes I think people use the word apologetics apologist or apolog- apologetics to actually mean evangelism but it's sort of a, a thoughtful evangelism rather than you know um you know not to undermine the value of quoting scripture but it, it's beyond that it's sort of um you know re- responding to objections and maybe preempting sort of certain objections as well so it'd be interesting to sort of get your thoughts on what you know what, what, what do you understand apologetics to even mean and its kind of relationship to evangelism yeah i, I mean i I think apologetics is just the reasoned defense of the truth of Christianity. So appealing to people's intellects and reason and explaining why Christianity is reasonable to believe. Um, I wouldn't divorce it from evangelism. And in fact, I would strongly actually, one of my favorite apologetic arguments is something I call the the argument from the gospel, where Hmm. I make the case that the gospel itself, the message that Jesus came to rescue sinners that's it. That's the message. <laughs> that that message is itself an apologetic for the truth of Christianity, and in fact is the best apologetic there is for the truth of Christianity. And we can get into that. But the, but the bottom line is because I I truly believe in that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. That we don't need apologetics. We don't. I mean, that sounds shocking for a quote unquote apologist to say. But I'm just saying if Christianity is true that God can deal directly with human beings at a spiritual level and reveal that it's true to them apart from any argument. He can do that. But of course, God uses means. And one of the means is people, I mean, there are lots of means. There's preaching the gospel is a means. People doing good works and being charitable and merciful to other people is a means through which God reaches people. And there, there are many different means. And we would never say, we'd never pit preaching against evangelism we would never pit bible study against evangelism we shouldn't pit apologetics against evangelism i'm saying they're, they're all means that god uses to reach people but i don't think he needs us to do any of those things right if he wants to god can reach anyone anytime you know supernaturally but but of course we, he's commanded us to do those things so we do them we just obey um but yeah but i but i think that if i have to Air. I think a lot of apologists can turn apologetics into a very intellectual, abstract discipline. And I think we should never forget that if heaven and hell are real and the gospel is true, that our primary goal is 
to tell people about Jesus and their need for him. And it's not just instrumentalists, but I, I think worshiping God with your mind is part of just being a Christian. Mm-hmm. But I think we should never poo-poo the simple, stupid, I mean, being pejorative here, but we shouldn't look down on people who are quote unquote, just sharing the gospel as if mm-hmm. they're naive and stupid. And if they were really smart, they'd, you know, they'd have a PhD. It's <laughs> not, I mean, gosh, this is the, that's the attitude of what the Pharisees and the Sadducees to the apostles. Mm-hmm. Remember they, they said they, these were unlettered men. Where's your, who's your rabbi? Who have you studied with? And they said, well, they studied with Jesus. <laughs> so we should never, and Jesus himself got, they were like, well, who are you? You're the son of a carpenter. So we should, I, you know, God forbid that Christians ever take that attitude towards other Christians who are simply trying in a simple way to share their faith. We should never, let's not, let's not be those people. That's, that's really good. And the, the frustration on my part with with apologetics is just that that it's we've made the gospel this elitist uh, rationalist um almost argumentative aspect of sharing our faith and uh just just hearing you, you say that the gospel itself is the apologetic is quite an interesting way of, of framing it that i hadn't quite considered because the way i see it is like evangelism is a big puddle <laughs> and then apologetics is a, a sort of drop in that that kind of works around the other aspects of evangelism and uh, sometimes people get caught up in trying to grab that little drop rather than engaging in the wider gospel the the good news of the kingdom and and how that impacts us um, i think that's a really good frame for where we're going with this conversation so i, th- I think that's that's really important when when you uh, we're mentioning sort of engaging in in university level with with Princeton Yale. Were you um, did that continue? Did you find you had really any strong pushback through your your career through your your doctorates at all? No, I mean I had uh, at Yale. You know my lab of I don't know eight to ten theoretical chemists, graduates, students, postdocs. But, you know, one of the deacons at my church was a graduate student. Uh, the, the postdoc in the next office was a Christian who had gone to my old church at Berkeley. Um, our professor, we, he had, we we're not sure if he was, how practicing it was, but he was a Catholic. Um, so, and, and, and then when I got to, when I arrived at Yale, this is a great story. When I arrived at Yale, the old postdoc had left to go to Japan, work at Japan, but he hadn't cleaned his office out completely. And so I'm, you know, his stuff's kind of in the office. So I yank open a drawer and there are a bunch of sermon CDs in the drawer, right? So that, that's kind of the environment. I mean, it's not like everyone in the lab was a Christian by any means. I mean, there were atheists, there were agnostics, there were, you know, there's a variety, but that was, it was not this totally, this environment that was inimical to religion or even to, or even to evangelical Christianity. It was very much a place where people could talk freely about their beliefs and to discuss them. And so I know I've never faced much pushback. I mean, I had conversations with my atheist lab mates about, you know, well, why believe this is true? And we talked about apologetics, but never animosity, always interest, curiosity. Oh, why do you believe that? So, mm. yeah, like I said, I think in, in my experience, the stories I have heard have always been that it's hardest to be a Christian in the humanities because, well, for various reasons, but I've always gotten that impression that it's much harder to be 
an English grad student who's a Christian or a sociology grad student who's a Christian or that, than it is to be a scientist who's a Christian. Yeah, I think that's probably probably true. I mean, they, they, I'm, I'm sure I've read something recently about when they um, survey um, beliefs of scientists is that actually it's remained pretty static uh, in t for the last hundred years in, in respect to the number of scientists who are we consider themselves theists. Um, although I think where it, where it has dropped is in the, the sort of higher echelons of scientists. So scientists more generally. Um, is, is it's remained static, but probably that, that top 1% is, mm. is where you'll probably find the greatest proportion of, of atheists and agnostics, etc. cetera. Um, with, that, with that in mind, so you mentioned, obviously, at, at, at Berkeley, you didn't really come against um, much sort of scientific sort of criticism. But in your, in your own experience, post, post then, there is, a, there is a very general uh, belief or, or assumption that, that science is incompatible well christianity is incompatible with science so i'll be interested on in your thoughts i'm sure those listening will be as well you know what um is there anything about christianity that's kind of incompatible with science or i mean i think that the sort of bare bones christianity just the idea that jesus was the son of god god incarnate that he died on the cross he rose again i mean the the only uh that god exists uh, th that kind of sort of mere christianity um there's very little that you could argue is, is even in tension with science. Uh, once you get past the idea that, well, is, is God, is any kind of non-physical God, any kind of non-physical being, a creator, is that antithetical to science? And I just think, well, clearly not. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, I, mean, I don't know if it's, I don't want to make it sound trivial, but I just think that that very idea that God and science are somehow, uh, in, even in a general sense or, or intention, I think is just, not that not true um and then in terms of the other objection would be then miracles and you know can miracles occur and here again maybe it's my own field but within theoretical chemistry uh where you're dealing with very spooky stuff like quantum mechanics and also in, in physics too that objection that you know miracles and god cannot uh, and cannot cannot that miracles can't happen within the scientific universe or a scientific worldview that objection has really fallen apart i believe in a large part due to quantum mechanics so when i hear atheists appealing to how science and miracles can't coexist they're often relying on some kind of victorian model of the universe like New newtonian classical physics that's just been abandoned frank frankly so yeah i don't think i have ever run into a scientist who made that objection they, they might say well i don't believe in god for other reasons right. but they would not say things like well miracles can't happen because again I, I we can go into this but quantum mechanics would just say that 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 assumption it really is not that it they, they're impossible that assumption is pretty implausible given what we know of or think we know of how physics actually works and then the details, of course, things like, uh, well, is the Bible inerrant because of things like evolution? That's a, that's a separate question. So there's a, you have to sort of take this in concentric circles. When you say science and Christianity are incompatible, what do you mean? Are you talking about that God can't even exist? You're talking about, well, God might exist, but he has to be a deistic sort of God who can't intervene and do miracles. Is that the objection? Are you saying, 
well, evolution can't coexist with Christianity. With Christianity, is that what you're saying? Are you saying that universe must be six thousand years old? What what exactly are you saying? And then so then and then ask then. Well, again, at what level is your question being asked? Are you asking a question about sort of any theistic worldview? Were you asking a specific question like, well, I think this reading of Genesis 1 is incompatible with science. That, so I think it's important for us to get specific because rather than making this very broad claim, we should narrow it down to exactly what's being asked. I think it's really important to notice that as a uh, engaging with any person that calls himself an ex-Christian, uh, I find that the vast majority of at least internet atheists engage with Genesis 1 on a very, very narrow view and are surprised when Christians go, that's not necessary. <laughs> uh, we, we don't need to restrict ourselves to that view. Here's a range. Here's YEC, OEC, uh, functionalism, all, all these different. Uh, and I'd be more inclined to give someone a book from John Walton myself because that's what I found helped me with the conversation. And so I think that's it's really that whole idea of let's ask questions before we start bringing answers to the table mm-hmm. uh, is vital for any evangelist to to listen far more uh, than you talk because you you might find yourself talking past someone giving answers that they don't even need need to hear. But I th- I think that's interesting. I, I'm just curious. Do you have a position yourself on the the whole debate? Don't need to go into a huge amount of detail. I'm just curious where you're at with um, the creation, young earth, old earth sort of view. Yeah, I tend to, again, I don't make this a big point in my talks. Again, what I try to do always is I always want to talk about Jesus and the gospel, right? And I always want to steer people towards that. And so I think, and I think, I think that almost all Christians whether they're young earth creationists, old earth creationists, anything would say that our view of Christianity really comes back to Jesus himself. Do you believe that he is the son of God, that he is who he claimed to be? And then that is going to inform your view of the Bible. Like, what is the Bible then? Well, Jesus seemed to think it was the word of God. Okay, well, then it's got to be true then, right? Okay, well, if we think it's the word of God, now we begin to wrestle with, well, what do I think of Genesis 1 or my goodness, the whole Old Testament or mm-hmm. the whole New Testament mm-hmm. or Paul's letter. So, but it comes back to what I think of Jesus. And so if you know, you're know you asking a question up here about, well, what do I think of Genesis 1? I want to point you back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What I think about that really depends on what I think about Jesus first. And so if I conclude that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that will certainly inform how I interpret anything in the Bible. But here's the thing. If I reject Jesus, who cares what the Bible says about <laughs> Genesis 1, right? If Jesus is a charlatan, he's a liar. Well, I don't care whether God and evolution are... Well, Christianity is false if Jesus is a liar. So I always ask the question, does this... Are you really asking a question about Jesus? Or are you asking... Or are you, are, you, are you confident that Jesus is the son of God? And then we can talk about Genesis 1. Or right. are you questioning whether Jesus is the son of God? Because let's talk about that earlier question the more important question first and sometimes they'll say well i i I have to know genesis one in order to know whether i'm confident about jesus i said okay we can we can deal with that let's make sure we put first things first Hmm. um and so but but personally you know i tend to be uh, i'm not a young earth creationist uh i just tend to not be um but i'm also not antagonistic to them i totally understand someone saying i follow jesus and i believe that the bible teaches the earth is young 
maybe not 6,000 years old, but you know, very young compared to say billions of years old. And there, and I think it's the Bible teaches it. I believe the Bible because of what Jesus said. And therefore I, I, I have to interpret the scientific evidence in light of my foundational belief about the Bible. And I would say, you know, amen to that. I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to get angry at you and you know, write open letters to you. I'm happy to <laughs> go, you know, but, but personally, and in, in, term, in terms of what I would definitely affirm is I would definitely affirm in a historic Adam and a historic fall. Because again, and, and you ask me, well, why is it because of some, you know, scientific evidence? And I'd say, actually, I'm not a biologist and I tend to be very hesitant to speak outside of my field. I've read actual technical papers on these issues, but my understanding of biology is going to be pretty superficial. Um, and so, but I would say, well, that, how can you know in a historic Adam and even a historic fall? And I would say, well, theologically, that's the thing. My, my worldview is formed around believing that Jesus is the son of God. And I can explain why I think that using reason and evidence. Mm-hmm. That's the foundation of my worldview. And from there, I would say that, and then from there, I say, well, and that means the Bible is authoritative and that means that it's inerrant. And that means, so I'd build that worldview. And then, and that's why I would affirm things the Bible is very clear on, which is that, well, this, you know, without that historic federal headship, then we really have to start changing our understanding of the gospel itself. And I just, that would not fit into my worldview. Um, mm-hmm. Which again, I think, I, it's not like I'm just assuming these things are true for no reason at all. I can explain why I think that, mm-hmm. but I would, always, but I, I don't feel, I think some people feel like they have to defend every single belief they have mm-hmm. from sort of evidence and reason. And I say, no, you can defend inferences too. So for example, people say, well, how do you know Jesus walked on water? That's insane. Where's the evidence? I say, well, the evidence is that he's the son of God and the Bible claims it. And therefore that's why I believe it. You say, well, you know, you have to have like a video or something, or you have to have <laughs> a piece of bread from the last supper. I'm like, well, that's not how reasoning works. I, I believe things inferentially all the time. Right. Phil, if you said I had cereal for breakfast, you say, I say, okay, how can you believe that? I said, he just told me, why would I not believe that? I, he's trustworthy. Why would he lie? So in a very similar way, I'd say, if I believe that Jesus is trustworthy and I believe the Bible's trustworthy, then I can believe what it says, even if I can't confirm it independently. Mm. And so again, there's, and I understand there's tension there between, well, what if the evidence seems to point in a different direction? What if Phil's wife tells me, I don't know if you're married, but oh, Phil's um, friend yeah. tells oh. me, right yeah (laughs) but what if i have other evidence that contradicts phil's claim well Mm. i have to deal with that then but but the point is sort of from a priori if i have a trustworthy source i trust its claims Mm. and and until i had and and given that jesus is an infinitely trustworthy source i can trust his claims infinitely it would take a lot to convince me that i'm again misunderstanding something he said to me it's possible it's possible Mm. but I think it would take a lot, the more trustworthy someone is and the more central that claim is, right? If, if I misunderstand something that, you know, some word in ancient Hebrew that's, you know, in second Chronicles, right? You know, okay, maybe, I don't know, sure. But to misunderstand sort of a central piece of the gospel, a central part of the biblical storyline would take a lot of, not to convince me that I've done that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, can, it can happen, I'm fallible, but it would take a lot for me to reconsider that. So that's, the the short answer is, hey, I'm not here to fight. The longer answer is, I think it's to, people should not be frightened to say, I believe these things because the Bible teaches them. I believe the Bible 
is true because I believe in Jesus. And if you want to argue with me, let's argue at that level, because that's really what we're arguing about. We're not, mm-hmm. I mean, I was asked and I say, if I could prove to you, I've done this before, give me the number one most problematic verse in the Bible that you think is false. And if I can convince you that that verse is actually true or that you've misinterpreted it, would you then believe in Christianity? And sometimes they, that's a good question because sometimes they'll just say, well, no, anyway. I'm saying, well, then why does it matter? <laughs> it's, like, it's not really your number one issue. Other times they'll say yes. And they'll throw out these crazy verses. Like I had one guy, I said, what are your two biggest problems with Christianity or the Bible? And he said, and one of them, he said, he, he, he quoted the verse where Jesus talks about the mustard seed being the smallest of seeds we plant in the <laughs> garden. And he said, no, orchid seeds are smaller. And I thought, and that, and that was his selection. I said, what are the two biggest problematic verses in the Bible? And that was one of them. And I thought to myself, my goodness, this guy is like, he's, he's missing the forest for the trees here. Start with Jesus. Don't argue about the size of orchid seeds. Start, is Jesus the son of God? Because I mean, the short answer was, Jesus is not teaching botany in this parable right? He's, he's just talking about the, the, this quality of your, that's it. But, but, but again, I think people can get so, it's a very fundamentalist in a, in a bad sense approach to the Bible. I mean, I'm a fundamentalist in some sense, but I'm I mean, saying this idea that we have to look at literally every verse in the Bible before we figure out whether Jesus is who he claimed to be hmm. is a sort of weird way to think about hmm. philosophy in general, theology, the way I view the universe. Um, you're approaching it kind of a the wrong end of the telescope there you're looking in at the wrong end yeah uh that's 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 really helpful it's, it's one of those things i I'd like when you start speaking like, i've got so many questions and things i'd like to explore but i also want to get into um you know i think the reason why a lot of people will know have heard of you um yeah. especially in christian circles and i think what's important about um your work as well as uh, i was explaining to my wife earlier is you've kind of transcended both Christian and secular side, I think, in, in regards to, um, you know, your discussions around critical theory. Um, and I think uh, if you're happy to, Phil, we can move move on to Yeah, no, that. I mean, like you, there was probably loads of questions that I'd be yeah. like, yeah, I could go into this for a while, but no, it's, <laughs> it's good. Uh, I really enjoyed that, so thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, how, so how did you get involved in critical theory? I mean, it's a bit uh, niche, to say the least. So we, we actually talked about this before we went live, but yeah, Dan, it was a book that you sent to me. It really got <laughs> me started. Uh, or not sent to me, but you told me about. So years ago, it goes back before the book you sent. So Dan sent me a book or told me about a book called Race, Class, and Gender. But you have to rewind a little bit. So probably five years ago, I was beginning to notice uh, a theological drift in cer- certain Christians that I knew personally and in public figures, even in organizations, they it seemed to be getting more liberal theologically, not politically. I, I was, I am and was pretty apolitical. You know, I, I'm not here to defend a certain party and you're in the UK, so it's totally different over there anyway. But in the US, very polarized, people are very upset about politics. That's not my concern, frankly. It's, you know, so I was happy to ignore all of that, but I began to notice their theology getting liberal, meaning they would begin to abandon things like biblical ideas about sexuality and gender or biblical ideas, even about the the gospel, the inerrancy of scripture, even the exclusivity of Christ. 
and I couldn't figure out what was happening. And I met my friend, Dr. Pat Sawyer, who has a PhD in cultural studies. Actually, he was getting his PhD at the time in an area related to something called critical theory. We'll talk about in a second. But he and I just met providentially, began talking, and he was describing his research to me, his dissertation. And when he talked about it, I said, huh, that sounds familiar. I think some Christians, some evangelicals are really struggling with that. And he said, "There's no, there's no way because he was getting his PhD in order to share the gospel with his secular colleagues. He said, I need to understand critical theory. It's this uh, briefly uh, ideology based on oppressors and, and oppressed and seeking social justice. He was trying to understand and work in that field to share the gospel with his secular colleagues. He said, there's no way an evangelical Christian would imbibe or embrace these ideas they're, they're totally not compatible with the bible so we actually got in a little bit of a discussion about i really think it's in, influencing people and and since then we've collaborated quite a bit but uh, he so he got me thinking about this field and then along the same around the same time jordan peterson really took off and i again listened to a few of his talks and i thought it was kind of interesting i was not a, i'm not a huge peterson fan but i wanted to understand the phenomenon so I began listening to his talks, and in one of the talks, he recommended the book Race, Class, and Gender. And I thought, huh, I think I, maybe I, I post up about that book on Facebook. And then I think Dan messaged me and said, hey, I actually have that book. You should read it too. So again, just providentially, that book came up several times. And so I actually ordered it and read it. It's like 500-page anthology of writings touching on things like feminism, queer theory, critical race theory, critical pedagogy, Marxism. And when I finished, I was like, this is super important because what I realized is why these Christians were drifting theologically. They were not just adopting a few new beliefs about politics. They were adopting a new worldview. And that was eroding their Christian worldview and leading downstream to these beliefs and these uh, political ideologies we were seeing expressed, but it was not the cause. So it wasn't that they embraced certain political beliefs. It was that they had embraced certain theological or ideological beliefs upstream. And that was having downstream consequences on everything else they were believing. And I, and that was, so that was like three years ago, I want to say. And, um, and so since then I've been just reading as much as I can while homeschooling my four kids and uh, trying to just help Christians to understand this new other new, I, I would argue it's an, it really is, a, it's not exactly a new worldview, but in its expression the last, say, five, 10 years, it is incredibly important and it's functioning as a worldview. And I want to help Christians to engage with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a competing worldview, isn't it? I mean, it's, in, in some ways, it's competing and almost engulfing existing worldviews and kind of restructuring them from, from the inside out. Um, I mean, one, one thing I've noticed um, is that there seems to be a, a significant gulf between how people normally use terms um, and how they're used within the kind of theoretical framework of, of critical theory. Um, so it'd be interesting to, to get your thoughts on, and I know me and Phil, have, have, we've discussed this, um, you know, Facebook and, and, and private, private as well, but, you know, terms like, actually, even before we get to there, I'd, I'd be interested in, you know, um, 
cultural Marxism, you know, what, what does that actually mean? And, you know, do they get, because yeah. I think p- people seem to use critical theory and, and cultural Marxism sometimes as kind of synonyms. Um, and I, I'd be interested in kind of your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, just define those two terms, critical theory and may- maybe even just a very quick touch on, on Marxism, just to, to cover our bases, if that's all okay. right. Oh, man. All right. So, okay. Th- and this gets very complicated very quickly. So, mm-hmm. you know, Marxism was the philosophy or the ideology promoted by Karl Marx. He obviously was sort of the, he produced communism and um, the idea was largely, stri- well, it's, it's very complicated. But- it, it is. Yeah. I, I realize that's a tough question, but it, as, as summary as you can, we've got a couple hours. <laughs> okay. All right. So okay. Br- very briefly. Okay. He had this idea that, um, the, the, the society, all of society's ideas, everything in the superstructure of society, ideas, religion, everything else on the society's superstructure was a function of, was determined solely by the society's base. That means its economic base, how uh, the, the means of production were controlled. And so I, I'm not going to get, I'm not an expert in Marx by any means at all, uh, but he wanted to, and, and he saw that the existing society in his day, uh, or, or capitalist societies, had really produced, uh, you had, you had the, the owners on the one hand, who owned, who controlled the means of production, the capitalists, and then you had the proletariat, the oppressed workers, who were then, you know, essentially enslaved, they were, but they were oppressed by the system, and all of their, the value of their labor was stolen by the, the owners, the capitalists. So, but, but those idea, that idea, the economic idea was not what was mainly uh, taken over by critical theories. That was Marx in the 1800s. But then in the 1930s, uh, a bunch of Marxists known as the, in the Frankfurt School in Germany, they wanted to apply Marx's analysis more broadly, not just to economics, but to other features of culture like uh, mass media. And so the Frankfurt School is a group of sociologists, and they, again, they applied that critique to more than just cla- class structure. It was mainly class, but it was, mainly, it was also about how uh, ideas can uh, produce domination, and they wanted to emancipate people from various forms of domination. And, and, th- but that, and then another major thinker who was in a very convoluted ways connected to them, he was not part of the Frankfurt School, but Antonio Gramsci was an Italian neo-Marxist, and his big contribution to this discussion was the idea of hegemony. Hegemony means the control of society's ideas. That becomes very important. So for Gramsci, uh, the ideas of society help to reinforce the oppression of the workers. So how does so his question was this? He was looking back on the history of, you know, of class oppression, and he said, how come the workers don't revolt? Right? Why are they? Why are they participating? Why are they? They're, they're supporting capitalism when they're being oppressed by it. He couldn't figure out why. So his idea was, well, the workers have absorbed certain ideas that make them complicit in their own oppression. So you ask an average worker, why don't you? Why don't you revolt? They'll say to you, because I, you know, it's a good system. It's a, you know, if I work hard enough, I can make it. I can survive. Hmm. So those ideas were actually um, producing or actually keeping them complicit in their own oppression. Okay, so take the Frankfurt School and Gramsci. That was 80 years ago. So critic, uh, the Frankfurt School 
developed the term critical theory in the 1937 essay. But that field of critical theory uh, has expanded tremendously in the last 80 years. And it has created entire fields like queer theory, uh, black feminism, um, critical pedagogy, critical race theory. These would all be under the heading broadly of critical theory, or they're sometimes called critical social theories. They're all different subdisciplines within this very broad umbrella category of critical theory. And today, they all, and they are, what's, what's the commonality of these different critical social theories? What they all have in common is they're all trying to understand how power circulates to reproduce social inequality and injustice. Hmm. And they, so they, and then, and then, and this is, again, this is where I get the terminology, it's complicated. So some people call this ideology cultural Marxism, and it makes, you understand why they're doing it, because number one, that term uh, was used by critical social theorists themselves in like the 60s and 70s. They called their ideas cultural Marxism. There were books entitled things like cultural Marxism, and they were people that were writing in the tradition of the Frankfurt School. So it's not a conspiracy theory. It really is an, a, a term that they developed themselves. However, that same phrase has been co-opted by very anti-Semitic neo-Nazis to describe this crazy conspiracy theory. So the term has two different meanings. And today, most people who use the term pejoratively are associated with this crazy anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, so which I want obviously to avoid. Mm -hmm. So the, and if you talk to scholars today, they will almost uniformly refer to critical theory. So it's a better term because you're like, I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about what they themselves say are the foundation of the ideas. Um, and they, but it's a, you have to understand it's a hugely broad area of knowledge. And so mm -hmm. people will say, well, that's not critical theory. This is critical theory. No, that's not critical theory. This is critical theory. So you, ha it's, it's really, the terminology is very confusing. Okay. That's so, oh, go on, do you have a question, Phil? It was just, just the, because one of the questions that I've got from, from before was how we end up sort of re reaching the topic of critical theory in church youth groups. So that's in the back of my mind. Mm. If you're to, to kind of summarize a little bit what it, it looks like and maybe that'll come out of the wider conversation and maybe that's a question we can have later on i'm, I'm happy for you to <laughs> control the flow if, if it's too too soon for the summary but are there like a few a couple of things that we you go that's that's critical theory like there's things that are common um throughout these wide range of definitions that people people throw out uh, yeah and Sorry, Neil, just to, just to correct, I think my question adds on to what Phil's saying um, to sort of build on that is, is why, why should we be concerned about critical theory within the church and culture as well? Maybe that might sort of. So I think one way to sort of organize what critical theory is and how to think about it, the place to start maybe, and even with youth group would be, what is oppression? So we're going to find that a lot of terms that we think we recognize, terms like racism, white supremacy, oppression, justice, equity, equality, terms like that. We hear those terms, we think, oh, I know what those mean. I'd say, no, you don't. These are terms that have been redefined within the context of critical social theory or critical theory today, whatever you want to call it. 
And so you always have to ask people to define their terms. And if I had to pick one term that's been redefined in a very significant way, that really in all of critical theory today flows out of that redefinition, it would be oppression. So let me just read you a quote from, uh, let's see, I think this is Mary, no, it's Iris Young. Gonna pull it up here. Um, so if you look at the, the I mean, oppression is a biblical word. The oppression is used in the Bible all the time. And in Isaiah 53, Jesus himself is called oppressed and afflicted. So we can't get rid of the word oppression. It's, mm-hmm. it's a biblical word, but traditionally, and biblically, and in the dictionary, oppression refers to things like tyranny, coercion, violence, and cruelty. So when people are oppressed in the Bible, it refers to their being treated unjustly, unfairly, cruelly, uh, someone's imposing their you know, power over them, taking away their rights, robbing them, murdering them. That's oppression. And he's like, that's, yeah, that's what oppression is. Okay. Critical theory has redefined that term. So let me read a quote to you from Iris Young's very, very famous essay, Five Faces of Oppression. She says this, in its new usage, so she's contrasting the old usage, cruelty, uh, coercion, violence, in its new usage, oppression designates the disadvantage and injustice some people suffer not because a tyrannical power coerces them, not because of that, but instead because of the everyday practices of a well-intentioned liberal society. Oppression is embedded in unquestioned norms, habits, and symbols. This is huge. And once you shift your definition from the traditional one to this new definition, pretty much everything else that we're seeing today within a contemporary critical theory follows. So she's saying oppression refers to not just cruelty, control, and tyranny. It also refers to when uh, ideas create sort of norms and values that are taken as common sense, but which serve to marginalize certain groups, to make them seem less valuable, less normal in any way. Okay, so you're, if, if, you're, if society has embraced some standard that that devalues or marginalizes certain groups, makes them seem not normal, abnormal, that is oppression. Now, we don't often, because we don't ask, we don't ask people, define your term, what do you mean by oppression? But that definition is really everywhere today. And people and Christians, they hear oppression, they think, oh, biblical word, are you for or against oppression? They say, well, I'm against oppression, I'm a Christian. The Bible talks about how we should be against oppression and for justice. So they assume that we're talking about the same meaning, but in reality, that definition is gonna have severe cascading implications. So here's just one. Based on that redefinition of oppression, how do we understand how society is structured? Well, if oppression is encoded in norms and values that seem you know, common sense and objective and universal. Well, whose whose norms are those? Where are those standards coming from? The answer is that critical theory gives is those standards are not actually universal and objective. They are being imposed by some oppressor group. There is some group that is imposing their norms and their values on the wider culture, and those supposedly objective standards 
are really serving to justify their social dominance. So for example, whites impose their white values and white standards on culture, and those standards are used to justify why white people have you know, this dominance in culture and why people of color are subordinate. Oh, it's uh, why 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 are people of color subordinate? Oh, it's it's easy, you see, because white people are they're more hardworking, they're they're more they're smarter, they're blah blah blah. They they it's it's all meritocracy. It's all fair. So those very ideas that are appealed to are real. They really serve to justify the power of the ruling class. Same thing with men. You know, why is it that men are most most CEOs are men? Uh, most uh, take your take your. Most scientists are men. Most engineers are men. People will tell you, oh, it's totally fair, you know, because men are just, men are smarter, men are stronger, men are courageous, men are supposed to be the protectors and providers. So that it makes totally fair that men have all of the power. See, that's the lie, the norm, the arbitrary power that's being exercised over our culture's ideas by the patriarchy. And you can, but there, and so once you accept that idea of oppression, you end up with these groups. You have oppressor groups and oppressed groups. Oppressor groups are the ones imposing their norms and culture. That's called hegemonic power. They have cultural hegemony. And the oppressed groups are those who are subordinated or marginalized by these standards that are taken for granted as fair, objective, empirical, universal, whatever. Um, so that we can go and there, that's just the, the implication just keep, it's like dominoes falling. They keep going. And so, what critical theorists do is they try to interrogate and dismantle these so-called objective norms and, and expose them as it really bids for power. It's very much a, a notion borrowed from Foucault, the postmodernist. Um, I, can, so I can stop there and sort of answer questions. So if, um, okay, so if, you know, for me, um, on the face of it, I could see how that could be um, you know, what you described or how they've redefined it could be understood as a kind of oppression. But not, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm not advocating that as a, a definition of, of oppression, but I can understand how that could be, those things you described could be understood as a kind uh, of, of oppression. But if, if we take that definition of oppression seriously, I was thinking it kind of seemed to me that, that kind of makes the term meaningless in a sense. Because if we, if we, a sort of thought experiment. If we swapped around now the groups that they class the oppressors and the, the, the group that we call the, oppre uh, the oppressed, if we swap them around so that now the people, the group who are oppressed are now the oppressors, well, then all we've done is swap different values and norms mm -hmm. for existing ones. And so then we would then have recreate the cycle again where the, the, oppre the, the, the people who are oppressed then have to try and swap you know almost swap around again try and change those norms and values so it's, it, it just seemed kind of meaningless as you were talking about it if that's how you define it if it's this constant struggle for um i don't know does that make sense I'm... yeah well so, so they would define so this is another implication critical theorists define social justice as the elimination of all forms of social oppression where again oppression is understood by the definition so they would say they don't want, yeah, you're right. They, they say they would agree that, yeah, you don't want to just reverse the roles and have a new set of hegemonic norms that oppress some other group. They, don't, they would say we don't want that. They would say they want a society in which power is shared. There is no 
hegemonic norm that excludes anyone. Uh, now, now it's a little bit complicated because you, they would they would fully admit we've never known such society. Like we, it's completely utopian. We we don't know of any culture in history that somehow has no norms or no hegemonic norms at all. But that doesn't stop them. They would say we just need to interrogate and dismantle the oppressive norms that currently do exist. And and again, their their idea is that once we get uh, we want a society in which hegemonic nor there's no there's no one hegemonic discourse that is accepted by everybody that excludes anyone. We want to have diversity, right? That's one of the big buzzwords. We want to bring in different groups and have them all share power, so that no one group's norms are dominant and oppressive and excluding other people, right? So that, that's their idea. You know, whether it's practical is is another question. But here's a, a more important point. You said, well. What you described is a kind of oppression, but not the definition of oppression. I would say actually no, because, and this is, this is the key, by that definition, that whenever you have a hegemonic norm, it is by definition oppressive. That's false. Why? Well, here's a hegemonic norm. Murder is evil. Murder, that's a, that's a norm. We, you know, we, you, thou shalt not murder is a norm. And oh, of course, if you ask Jews and Christians, they'll appeal to it. Oh, it's not a, it's not an oppression. It's actually God's command. Ah, uh, yeah, right. You know, all you're doing is you're claiming it's God's, it's universal, it's a universal moral norm. But really, it's a way for your group, your religion to maintain its dominance over other groups. Now, in this case, you'd say, well, that's ridiculous because every group says murder is, is immoral. Ah, but what about sexual norms, right? So, so it, yeah, so what we realize is that we're, again, we're going to appeal to say, well, God created human beings with certain values, with certain, uh, what's normal for human beings, the way he designed us, that's the way we ought to live. And that includes sexual ethics. But they would say, you're doing the same thing. You're still claiming that your arbitrary uh, imposed values are universal, and it's a way to marginalize LGBTQ people. So we see through that. We are going to subvert your norms. We're going to dismantle this, this claimed universal value, which really is just your own group's value, which makes you feel superior. What you begin to see is the problem is not in the definition. The problem is that norms are not oppressive, not all man-made false norms are. So I totally agree. If I, you know, if, if one of the norms we've had in our country in the U.S. in the past is absolutely white people were considered to be better than people of color. That was, you know, it's, it was in our laws for a long time. It was in a, you know, so we had a, a truly oppressive norm where we all were taught or in our, our laws taught whites really are better they deserve to be on top they deserve to have power that was an oppressive norm but not because it was a norm it's because it was a man-made norm it was not truly a true value it was one that we created for our own benefit or right so that should be dismantled but but it's totally wrong for christians to believe that all norms function that way because some norms are actually biblical so that, and that's the, again, that's how, I don't say how they get you, but th that, that little deviation from the truth is exactly how we veer off into complete chaos. 
because we have to differentiate between we have to say there are actual truly biblical good and just norms that are, that every society should function under and there are other norms well there are other norms that are neutral like wearing pants that's a norm right but you know in some cultures maybe you just wear Okay, it's pants. Yeah. Pants is. We hope people wear pants, but we don't need to know if they are or not, <laughs> unless yeah, they've okay. got yeah, underwear. <laughs> unless they've got something over the top of them. <laughs> let's, let's, okay, let's pick. That's right. How about this? How about this? Uh, you know, togas. You know, if I wear a toga out on the street today in America, in the U.S. in 21st century, that's abnormal, right? It's not normal. Is it oppressive that the norm in the U.S. today is that togas are weird? That's not oppressive, okay? That's just it's an it's a non-moral cultural standard, right? There are some standards that are moral. Things like saying murder is wrong is a moral norm. It's an absolute God-given, God-ordained moral norm that all cultures should embrace. Other norms are amoral. You shouldn't wear togas. Is a cultural in, in, in second century Rome that was a totally that's not the norm was wearing togas, but in the U.S. it's not. That's amoral. Culture is a culture. It varies. It's fine. God does not care whether we wear togas or don't. Uh, and there are other norms that are immoral. The, the idea that whites are superior to non-whites is an immoral norm that we should dismantle. But they're not all the same. And we can talk about how a good example of people conflating these different values and norms is found in Peggy McIntosh's uh, the phrase white privilege. If you look at that paper, it's a classic example of someone confusing different kinds of things and putting them all into the same category. So Macintosh will say, you know, white privilege is the unearned advantage that whites have over non-whites. And she lists like 47 or something of these privileges, but some of them are moral. They're the, they're the result of sin and others are non-moral. They're the result of things like just numbers. So for example, she says, one manifestation of a white privilege is that, you know, if you're a white person, you can, you can hang out, you can arrange your day to hang out with only other whites, right? And she's like, that's white privilege. Now, is that a moral failing or a moral problem? The answer is no, because if I were living in, I don't know, in India, right? I'm half Indian. If I were living in India, an Indian could arrange their day to hang out with only other Indians in India. It's just, it's not sin. It's just the fact that India is full of Indians, right? Mm. America's majority white right now. So it's not something bad. It'll happen in any culture. Uh, it's still, okay, I can see why it's still, okay. It's like if I, if I were, when my, my wife visited India for the first time 10 years ago, maybe 12 years, but yeah, it was, people would stare at her. They were like, oh my gosh, who is that? And so, it, yeah, it made her feel a little bit awkward, I guess, but it wasn't a sin for them to be surprised that a white person is here. Um, on the other hand, the other examples she gives are things like, as a white person, I don't, I don't have to worry about being followed around a store by a shop owner who's worried I'll steal something. Now, that is a function of living in a fallen world, right? In, in a perfect world, a person would not be followed around and it'd be you know, looked at suspiciously simply because of their skin color. That's a function of having, of, of having prejudice in our hearts, maybe. Uh, of various things, but she lumps them all together in the same category. When I'm arguing that, again, some norms are immoral, some norms are good and moral, and other norms are amoral, and we have to keep them separate. And mm. because we don't, we'll end up with, if, if you follow the reasoning, 
This is exactly why people will say things like the gender binary is oppressive. And, and again, the Christians will be led down that path by beginning to think along these lines. Whenever you have a dominant group imposing their norms on culture, that is oppression by definition. And if you look at the U.S. today, there absolutely is a heteronormative norm. We think people naturally are heterosexual. It's in our ads, it's in our TV and movies and books and everywhere. But is that good or bad? Well, it depends what you think human beings are for. Who created us? What mm -hmm. is there? Is there any standard at all? And that's the question you need to be asking. But if you once you embrace that wrong definition, it intellectually leads you to certain beliefs about sexuality, gender, all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, and, and that, I'm glad you said moral and normal, because that's what I was kind of thinking as well. Because, I mean, you know, if there are, are norms that, if embraced largely by culture, disadvantage women, for instance, mm. surely that, that's something that we should want to change. And, and, and I think, like, like you were saying, is it, it, they get grouped together. And that's and that, so, you know, on the one hand, Christians are like, well, no, we can agree that's bad and we need to change that. But then this all falls into a larger picture of actually how rubbish the church has been as a whole. Because what tends to happen, we tend to be, um, we tend to be reactive rather than proactive. So rather than now we're playing catch up is actually we're sort of, we should have been having these discussions four years ago, mm. you know five years ago, 10, you know, but, decades. Yeah. yeah, just I'd settle for anything. I'd settle for six, you know, a year ago, you know, mm -hmm. better than now, but we're paying catch up. And so, you know, what, what you've, what you've identified is we're now, we're in a culture now that's using language. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a fundamental, um, um, roadblock between us actually engaging because you can't we have we don't have we don't even have shared language in which to have a, a discussion you know so you've got one person saying well no no you know we need to end depression go, oh well, yeah we do need to end depression but they're you know completely different ideas about about what that means yeah um yeah it's just it's it's, it's frustrating um yeah. And I think a lot of Christians don't even realize that like they, you know, especially young Christians, very idealistic and they're going to change the world, but they don't, they hear these slogans, they hear these words and they think, well, gosh, of course I'm on the side of justice and mm -hmm. equality and I'm anti-oppression, but then they don't know how those words are being defined within a, and I would argue what functions as a worldview. And so they, they sort of sign that they sign up, they get on the, they got on board and then a year or two later or three years later, four, they eventually start drifting because they've, again, they've imbibed these ideas at a very fundamental level and it's part of their identity now. So to them to say, wait a minute, I took a wrong turn here. You're asking them in their mind to be pro-oppression, right? So they can't, they can't, they can't go back and it's too late. The genie's out of the bottle. And so they can't bring themselves to go all the way back to first principles and say, wait a minute, I took a fundamentally wrong turn in terms of how I'm understanding justice and oppression from a biblical perspective. But I think that's, we have to start having that conversation now and saying, wait a minute, guys, you know, we, we, we can be pro biblical justice and yet realize that what's being offered to us now is an entirely different vision of what justice means. 
Well, it, I can see why people are thinking this is a complex web because I'm thinking of so many areas within Christianity that I can see clashes and just need to be unpicked. I'm trying to get it into one question rather than 10 all at once. So we've got, obviously, we've got the exclusivity of Christ. He's the, the way, the truth, the life. Uh, and we all know that. How do you combat that that's become oppressive um because that is a that is oppressive we we are yeah. very exclusive in that message yes salvation is for all but it's for all who believe yeah. <laughs> and and that is a really important distinction so i guess i guess the the first point the first hurdle is that exclusivity i can see and i, I guess i'm trying to think is that actually just an apologetics and evangelism issue or not anyway like because was that a problem before critical theory and all this came up i think that well i think the problem is that like i said it's it's often a uh, not a slippery slope it's people it's the leaven of critical theory working its way through someone or eating its way through their worldview so they don't no one starts no one no one says i you know i they don't even they don't even necessarily know what they're embracing so no one let me give you an example I think the way that critical theory is finding its way into the church is not through reading or through rational thinking. It's through slogans. Hmm. So they'll hear a slogan and they'll say, gosh, of course I'm for that. You know, Jesus wants me to be for that. So they'll embrace the slogan. And then over the course, again, of months and years, as that slogan sinks deeper and deeper into their soul, uh, it begins to be worked out. They begin to, again, think rationally and logically about its entailment so here's a here's a great slogan you i mean you'll hear it you'll be like yeah obviously we should we should dismantle all structures which perpetuate privilege mm-hmm. we should dismantle all structures which perpetuate and you're like amen i mean you're thinking immediately people are thinking about sexism and racism and all kinds of horrors and they're looking at our history of slavery and thinking yeah i mean throughout history we've dismantled structures that pr- promoted privilege right and you think well wait a minute wait a minute what about Christian privilege? Because I can show you tables from critical theorist writings where they talk about Judeo-Christian privilege. Mm-hmm. Why? Because which holidays do we get off in our in the U.S.? We get off Christmas and Easter. You don't get off, you know, Ramadan for Ramadan. You don't get off. Well, it's a long time, but whatever. You don't get off, you know, Zoroastrian holidays. You don't get off Muslim holidays necessarily. And so then that's an example. And people will list it. They'll actually list things like white privilege. Uh, you know, heteronormative, heterosexual privilege, male privilege, Christian privilege. They'll talk about uh, white, the patriarchy, talk about white supremacy. They'll talk about Christian hegemony and how it produces privilege. Because you assume that you go in the United States, at least, everybody's a Christian. You know, we're all Christians here. It's assumed that you're Christian. And that's an example of hegemonic, and a hegemonic discourse. You, know, you, you pray to a certain God, you you have the picture of white Jesus in your living room. So you have a Bible in your hotel room. That's Christian hegemony. Hmm. That's pre- producing privilege. So do you dismantle Christian hegemony by embracing all religions? And again, they're not just saying embracing it at a cultural level, but at a level of ideas, right? Because their whole idea is not just it's a it's we need to make under law these religions all equal because we have that in the U.S., they're saying in our thinking, in our ideas, 
we have to make all these religions equal. I mean, right. maybe personally you can choose to worship just Jesus, but you start preaching from the pulpit every Sunday that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That is you imposing a, a bigotry as bad as racism and sexism every Sunday to your entire congregation. So, but Christians, again, they're not signing up on day one to tear down Jesus as the way to God. They're not doing that, but they've put themselves on a path that will lead to that if they're consistent. Yeah. And that's that problem. So I think we, so that again, but we, when I, when I, if I were to just say that slogan and say, do you believe we should tear down all systems and ideas which promote, which, you know, privilege, you know, in our society, and I bet you 95% of Christians would say, absolutely. Then I say, well, think about that for a second. And then they, you know, they're stunned, not only that that would be an implication logically, but there are actual people saying that. <laughs> they, they need to do that. Yeah. They have no idea. And I was interested in your, so on your website, you've got those uh, screenshots or pictures of the different diagrams that show these different levels yeah. of, of oppression. I find that really interesting. I mean, I, I am probably the biggest oppressor of them all. Uh, I'm straight, I'm cis, I'm white, I'm middle class. So I mean, I'm, I'm Christian, so I'm, I'm the oppressor. Yeah. So basically anyone listening to this who is holds to critical theory, I basically should shut up <laughs> and let everyone else speak. And so I think that's the, the bit that I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with because I do see, and I think most white people that I talk to will recognize that there are experiences that I don't have to think about, at least in the UK, because I am white and even more because I'm a white male, even more because I'm a white straight <laughs> male. Yeah. And, and so it, it's playing on these ideas that I can see. I can see my, my fellow elder in my church. I'm very grateful for him. And, and he's he's black. And so he's telling me about stuff like how many times he's been stopped when he first got his driving license. He's telling me about experiences that I'm going, I don't, I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have to worry about that. Uh, that is a privilege. Mm -hmm. And and so it's playing, I know I've shared on my Facebook feed that white privilege exists, but I think it's, it's so important that you're pulling out the definitions here. I've also seen fellow white people sort of jump over themselves. And we've seen it recently here with a guy flying over uh, Burnley uh, football soccer stadium, flew this flag saying all uh, white lives matter. Mm -hmm. And everyone in Burnley was just jumping over themselves to say how embarrassing, how racist, how outrageous this thing was. And sure, the timing is very insensitive and it should rightly have been checked, but the statement itself, mm -hmm. it how's that racist? Other than society has assumed this bombardment of ideas that that is a privilege that he gets to to fly that. But everyone would have applauded him if it said Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, yeah. And that but, would have been a heroic thing to do if he wanted yeah, fame. Yeah. Like he could have just stuck his name on the plane and he would have been famous for the forever. But so it's trying to gauge the. I can accept there's some form of privilege in being white. Yeah. Where does that take me as a, as a Christian? I'm, I can't, I can't assume guilt for being what I'm born. Yeah. What, what can I, what can I do? <laughs> Where can I go with this as a, as a, as a Christian, as a, a leader in the church? So one thing that the way to really spot 
grid or these ideas again what do you call it critical theory contemporary critical theory there's no terminology that's being used right now um they, people that are writing in this tradition will, will say they're doing critical social justice or social justice scholarship but there's no one label so whatever you want to call it's fine critical theory i think is fine um if we understand we're talking about this this one manifestation of critical theory not the frankfurt school not some other uh iteration of it um one important thing to understand is that it manifests most clearly in asymmetry. So we talked about how there's, you know, there are oppressors and oppressed, and that 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 is that assumption is built into how everything else flows from uh, well, everything else is worked out within critical theory. So you 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 ask the question, you say, you know, clearly there are. Ace, there are real asymmetries between, say, how whites and blacks are treated on average, right? We, we can acknowledge that completely. Um, there, there are caveats there, but okay, broadly speaking, sure, you know, whites will have experiences that on average are different than blacks experience on average. But in terms of like, well, you talked about how well, some of us would say that, okay, you're a heterosexual cis white male, you should just shut up and listen. I think that's one asymmetry there because People sometimes think we're all about lived experience, right? Your experience gives you this authority to speak. And uh, so that's why we say, would say, okay, if a black man tells you about how he's been pulled over by cops or he'd be even harassed, that's his experience. You should listen to it. And I would say, absolutely. Amen. But here's the thing. Let's say a white man then speaks up and says, actually, you know, that happened to me too. I got pulled over. And they'll be, hey, be quiet, be quiet. We mm -hmm. don't want to hear that. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. I thought we were about listening to lived experiences. What, shouldn't we listen to this white guys also? And the answer is no, once you understand the theory. According to critical theory, people that are, are from oppressor groups are blinded by their privilege, right? They have, they have both conscious and subconscious reasons to pretend they live in a just society, right? Whereas people that are oppressed, whether they're women or blacks or, or Asians or LGBTQ people, those people are actually have the potential to uh, achieve what was called a liberatory consciousness. They can get woke and then they are more aware of reality because they can see through the lies of these oppressor groups. Hmm. So that explains why we're not just saying the postmodernists would say, you have your truth. I have my truth. He has his truth. We, we reject all meta narratives. You know, they would deconstruct all of these truth claims. That's not what critical or contemporary critical theory does they would say there actually is an objective truth but privileged people can't see it whereas oppressed people have a bet are better able to see the truth because they are oppressed it's that's why yeah what's that it's the new enlightenment we, well, yeah in some ways and so that's why we would valorize the lived experience of say uh, a black lesbian woman but we would ignore the lived experience of a cis white man. Hmm. You say, because it's not, it's not postmodernism, it's something else, because you're saying that she is attuned to reality in a way that you are blinded to as a cis white man. So same reason why we have, and again, the Black Lives Matter thing, again, you, you know, if you fly a White Lives Matter flag, you're, you're just being a jerk right now. Yeah. Okay? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, that. But it's deep, but okay, so I'm not obviously defending that, all right? I'm just saying that, it's deeper than just that. Mm -hmm. It's deeper than just that. Um, well, at a time like we're experiencing right now, when when blacks are understandably upset, f 
flying a flag like that, you're just being a jerk. Oh, ab- but, absolutely. Be, yeah, completely. But beyond that, but here I'm saying, but beyond that, let's say we're dealing with a, a normal, like, you know, people are calmer, people are thinking, we just want to have a conversation. Even then, outside of that context, you'll still get the pushback that you need to be quiet and listen mm. as a cis white male. Why? Because there's this underlying assumption that you are blinded and you need to hear the perspective of those who can see or see better. Yeah. Um, and I think as Christians, I think obviously, you know, be slow to speak, quick to listen. Mm. Uh, we, we should not get offended. Well, I, I'm not going to listen. I have my rights. You should listen. Yeah. But, but I think at some point, so I, you know, I don't get in these discussions and say, no, no, I, how dare you? I'll talk if I want to. I'm happy to listen. But it's only when people begin saying, you can only listen. You can only agree. You can only tell me that my truth is the right truth because of my social location. That's what I have to say. That's why that's where every Christian should say, that's not how we operate as believers. We operate on the understanding that what God says is what is our standard and what God's reality says, what God's universe tells us is the standard. Either way, it's either God's special revelation or his general revelation, but that's how we know the truth. We don't know it through your privileged your your your, your so your your oppressed lived experience it might be true and i'm here to listen to it but it also might be false because in, and this is the weird thing but again it makes sense if you know the theory it is absolutely true that my experiences my life experiences and my interpretations will be colored by my social location as a half male half indian educated straight cisgendered theoretical chemist mm. that that will influence my experiences even how i interpret things absolutely my theology i i can totally get behind that okay but the other side is your experiences and your interpretation will also be colored by being a you know a black lesbian woman who is you know whatever whatever they are that will color your interpretations too so no one gets there, no one should get their interpretations of scripture to be the only ones at the table. Mm. We all have to come together with our own prejudices and biases, bring them to scripture and say, what does God say? Yeah, that's really good. No one gets preferences and gets to say, I talk, everyone else listens. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so that, that's, that's, that's a really key. I think Christians out of a desire to be humble and to be, and to be receptive, that's great. I don't want to question that, but I do want to say you have to be willing to take a stand and say, I want the Bible to be our ultimate authority. And if someone's unwilling to do that or says only my, inter-, you know, before we used to be like only white male interpretations count. That's wrong. Yeah. But yeah, now yeah. we're almost in the opposite, which is no, those, they were all wrong. And so now we have to have other interpretations. I'm saying, no, no, no. There is one true interpretation and we all have to come together as believers and figure out what that is. Now, it might be that these old white guys got it all wrong, but it might be that they didn't. And but, we have but to also be- history yeah. of the church isn't all white. And I think that's really, <laughs> really got to be laid out clear. So I just just wanted what was it means to interrupt. I just wanted to put a definition around. Um, we keep saying the word cis and I, I, oh, yeah. I, I recognize that. I had to explain to my wife <laughs> what that, that this word is. So just for those who aren't clear, it's the, the label for those whose gender aligns with their biology. 
so I'm I'm cisgender because I'm male and I call myself male uh, as my my gender. So you can call me he, him, and and all that sort of thing. And so this is the the then goes into the oppression of the trans community who would pick <laughs> choose a gender how or have it how and and it's this language of gender assignment which that's that's a huge kettle of fish i don't want to open i just wanted to explain what that word was so sure. um dan did you have a, a question to follow up on yeah i was just going to say so from from within the lens of critical theory by definition i i simply don't have access to objective reality is that is that accurate they wouldn't say you don't at all. They would say they would. So it depends who you ask, frankly. Uh, the the scholars would say you you you're inclined to blindness. Not that you're definitely blind, but you're inclined to it. You tend to be blinded to reality, and uh, it's not all truths necessarily. This is a bit it gets tricky, but mainly truths pertaining to oppression. So they would say the closer you get to things about oppression, the more that your sort of innate biases and your your privilege are going to blind them blind you to them in the same way the more the closer we get to topics of oppression the more that a person's um oppressed status will give them access to truths again through their lived experience that they were blind to now here's the funny thing though uh what happens when you get a say a person of color who disagrees with the predominant narrative about them being oppressed. I just saw Thomas Chatterton Williams is a, is a black guy who grew up in France, I think, who really objects to the idea that, that he's oppressed as it mm. He's like, no, I, I reject that narrative. Well, he, because, we're, because all of culture is socialized into say white supremacy, we're all taught that whiteness is white is right and that white is a default. We're all taught that. Therefore, even oppressed people can have what's called internalized oppression. So they can absorb these norms or say women, women can absorb the values of the patriarchy and think those really are true and neutral and universal. So when a person of color or when a woman or when an LGBTQ person says, actually, I reject that way of thinking. I, I don't think that I am oppressed. They'll say, yeah, but you are internally oppressed. You have uh, imbibed this false narrative. And so you can also be dismissed. So now you're in this weird situation where if a white person objects, you can say, oh, well, of course you would. You're trying to protect your privilege. But if a person of color objects, they can also be dismissed because they have internalized oppression. So you're really left with this unchallengeable narrative. It's brutal. <laughs> so, well, no. So actually, you know, Robin D'Angelo, who's like the number one bestseller in the U.S. right now for her book, White Fragility. But in her book, she basically her thesis is all whites are racist. And if you object to that characterization, that means you're fragile. So you can't handle being called racist because you're fragile. So what's this? What's the what's what can whites do? Well, whites can either admit they're racist and prove her thesis or they can deny they're racist and show that they're fragile thereby proving your thesis. So no matter what a white person does, and, and the ways that the fragility is exhibited by things like um, arguing, disagreeing, not you know, shutting down and not answering, getting emotional. <laughs> She's a whole chapter on white women's tears and how when white women begin to cry as a response to hearing stories of racism, that's actually a way for them to reassert their white supremacy and to regain what she calls racial equilibrium. So basically, 
in her book, there is literally nothing. And she actually even says in one of her papers, the question is not, was this act racist, but rather how was this act, how was racism manifested in this act? So in other words, every act is yes. racist. The question is only how was it racist? And there, and, and, and it, it sounds you're like, no way, like, yes way. She, the, the, it is, a, it's called a Kafka trap. You know, you, any denial of the accusation is taken as evidence of the truth of the accusation. It's a really interesting term, but it, it really is one. And uh, it, there's no escaping it. And so I, I can't believe I, I'm, I've seen evangelical pastors and churches and organizations recommending this book as like a good guide to thinking about race. And it's just a really bad idea. Well, it's, um, yeah, heads you win, tails I lose. Uh, and it's <laughs> it's just really, really crazy. So would you say then, even just going right back to the word racism, has that been redefined? Yeah, actually, they're even thinking of changing the dictionary now. But but in the dictionary, racism you know, refers to basically racial prejudice. But the way that, uh, and it's, you know, the way that, what's the name for them? Because sociologists do this, psychologists do it, but in the stream of scholarship, call it contemporary critical theory, whatever you want to call it, uh, anti-racist literature. Racism is generally defined as prejudice plus power. And by power, they don't mean personal power. They mean prejudice plus your group's institutional power. Mm. So under that definition, a, a person of color cannot be racist by definition because their group lacks institutional power. So only whites can be, now, now people of color can be prejudiced on that definition, but they can't be racist. Uh, now that's not obviously in the dictionary right now, but they're actually thinking of changing the dictionary to reflect that usage. Um, and I would argue on biblical grounds, that's a terrible way to define the term because racism is a sin. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in scripture, we see that sin is ultimately between you and God, primarily, obviously you can sin against someone else, but you know, David talks about how, you know, against you, you only have I sinned. So all of our sin is primarily against God, even if we hurt other people. And because of that, any person can commit any sin. It's not like only powerful people can commit this certain sin. Only, and, and it's not even that, only people within certain groups can commit this sin. So if you're thinking about racism in terms of as a sin primarily, then you shouldn't define it in a way that, that exempts certain groups entirely from that category of sin. It's just a non, a, a really deeply unbiblical way to think about sin. I, I, I liken it to defining adultery. When a, when a, when a woman is, is unfaithful within marriage, it's called adultery. But when a man does it, it's cheating. It's like, no, they're both adultery. And, mm -hmm. and to change the language to make it asymmetric is actually obscuring the fundamental nature of adultery, which is a sin against God, not against other people. That's so much there. So, Aaron, we've got a few questions about resources. Now, for anyone who's watched any of our other shows, that we generally do a book question at the end. So we'll, for those who are waiting for their answers on resources, we'll save those for when we start to wrap up this conversation. I think there's a little bit yet to come. But there's an interesting question here. I'm just trying to unpick a little bit more of where this theory can be seen in churches already. So I, I mentioned that we've got the exclusivity of Christ. 
and that's obviously down the line. That's not like what you start with. Yeah. Where, and I, I can see it potentially. So, for example, my church and rightly so did a did something about the experience of uh, what we call. I don't know if the label fits over over in America, but we say B A M E or BAME, yeah. uh, Black Asian Minority Ethnic. Um, we had them share their experiences with with the church and just to listen and. It caused a little bit of controversy. I heard some things back of like, what do you think about that, Phil? And I was like, well, it's right to listen. Yeah. And I think for me, it's then what comes next is is what I'm seeing. And what I am seeing on Facebook and social media, unfortunately, is a lot of the White Lives Matter flags. Yeah. So people will share their experience and they'll have horrendous stuff come up with like, well, first of all, all lives matter it generally comes up. Then it's like, yeah. what about black on black violence? What about, and you end up with people and, and no wonder those people who are black are, are feeling that p- white people are fragile. Yeah, <laughs> if, yeah, that's, right. if that's your first comeback is, well, what about black on black violence? Which I saw it right. on um, Christianity magazine posted something about black lives matter. First comment, white Christian guy, <laughs> here's here's something from nationalreview.com which is fairly alt-right i believe and you're like what are you doing <laughs> what are you doing like we we can agree black lives matter we don't have yeah. to jump the gun and and start worrying about the world like let's start looking at our church so i've talked a little bit about white privilege talked a bit about what our response at the moment should be listening i guess but as we start to see the the next steps We've listened as a church. Mm. What next steps should I be wary of? And what kind of next steps should I really engage fully with? Well, so I would agree that in a lot of these cases, critical theory, this is why it's attractive. It takes a a truth and then it puts it in a framework that's totally false. So are some white people fragile? Yes, Mm. (laughs) obviously. But look, why? Well, are some black people fragile? Yeah. Are some men fragile? Yes. Are some women fragile? Yes. Why? Because humans are fragile. Humans get defensive, right? So same thing, white privilege. Are, do whites have some, I call it unearned advantages? Yeah, of course, of course they do. Sure. Do men have some? Of course they do, right? I don't think we should deny that. Um, but does it, but should we embed those narrow ideas into this really large, totally false framework? No, we shouldn't. It's very dangerous. So what I found is generally I speak to, I've spoken to very conservative audiences about this topic of critical theory. And I've talked about how, how dangerous it is, how antithetical to a biblical worldview it is, how dangerous it is to the church, how it will destroy the church from within if we absorb it. But then in my talks, after doing all of that, and I try to be fair and give lots of quotes and I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm just explaining what it is, why it's bad. Why, why it's good, so what it is, why it has some good points, like obviously oppression is bad. Um, structures can be sinful. You know, sinful human beings can create sinful laws, obviously. Mm-hmm. Critical theory is attuned to that, so that's not a false thing. Um, there can be oppressive ideas. So you know, why do Christians have, uh, is why was it hard for us as Christian parents to teach our kids about sexuality or standards of beauty from a Christian perspective? because we're bombarded by false ideas. So 
hegemonic power is a real thing. It can influence our thinking. The Bible itself says, you know, to, to, to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. It realizes there can be bad false ideas that we're imbibing from our culture that we need to always hold up to scripture. So all those things are true. And yet there's lots of bad ideas too within this framework. But here's the thing. After doing that for 40 minutes and all the conservatives are, you know, yes and amen, I give a whole section on racism in, in the past, in our U.S. history, lynching, Jim Crow, uh, today within the, within the church, how there is real racism today within evangelical Christianity. I talk about how horrific the past was, our need to dialogue, to read black authors. I say all of that. I have never gotten anything but amens from wildly conservative audiences, white largely white audiences for that section of the talk. They're not, so my point is this, are there some white Christians, and I not just not single them out, but white Christians, black Christians, but are there some white Christians who just don't want to talk about race at all? And anytime you talk about race in any way, they, they'll, they'll say white lives matter and they'll get upset and you're a Marxist. There are people like that. But when it, when I, my lived experience is that when I talk about these ideas, to very conservative Christian audiences who are largely white because they are actual believers who love their brothers and sisters of color. They truly do. They're not angry about that. They want to listen. They want to find unity. They do. But I, so once, so here's the thing, the way for the church to address this, I think is if you are clear about you are, you know, the dangers, you know this underlying functional worldview that is incredibly toxic. You talk explicitly about it. Once you do that, then I have found that people are super receptive to talking about how you experience racism, the history of slavery and, and Jim Crow in the South and, and, uh, and the, the current state of people today and their experiences. They're open to that. They will weep with you, right? So I, I, I don't... I think the problem is people see that on the one hand, people see this, this knee jerk defensive reaction and say, see, you, you all really are racist. Right. And I'd say maybe, but other hand, maybe they are just spooked because they see a legitimately dangerous worldview out there and they have this knee jerk trigger against They're like, Oh no, that's Marxism. Um, hmm. And I, so I think we can do both. I, I do both in my talks. And like I said, I've gotten lots of, what I get is I, when I get feedback, uh, from non-white Christians, the, the number one response I get from non-white, largely black Christians is that was so balanced. I really appreciate how, that's the, the word they use is balanced because they realize I am not here to just dunk on critical theory and then ignore race. I'm not gonna give people an out to avoid talking about race. And I'm not gonna use race as a cudgel to beat them over the head. I'm here to bring us back to the Bible and say, this is a false worldview, but here's the true worldview. And here's what the Bible has to say about racial tensions, racism, and how we achieve unity in Christ. And then it seems to me like 95% of people are willing to listen to that message. So it can be done. Yeah. What, um, you know, we hear uh, a lot of Christians that talk about the notion of colorblindness. Mm. And, um, you know, I know if you read some, people from within sort of the lens of critical theory will kind of hear that term and it's almost like a dog whistle to kind of 
um, tacit sort of racism and things like that. So what, you know, to the, to the kind of, I'm sure I read somewhere that, you know, if you look at Martin Luther King Jr., you know, promoting um, color, a kind of color blindness, mm -hmm. um, that in itself is kind of indicative of, you know, uh, white supremacy, you know, in a, yeah. in, 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 in a way, which just seems crazy uh to, to to me but i i do get what some people are saying because i think um like you've kind of been saying is i i can i i can see how it were how people will think of themselves as doing that but it also it, i can see how it also gives uh, we're very good at lying to ourselves in a way and i'm not saying anyone who says that they they try and be colorblind or are colorblind they are lying to themselves but it can i can see how that can be a kind of out to kind of escape thinking more about race mm -hmm. by saying well i'm i'm colorblind i treat everyone the same might be the case but if you don't actually maybe reflect on some of the things you've been talking about mm -hmm. um you know you might see perhaps that's not necessary um the approach you have actually taken uh, or whether there's room for improvement um I know, what, what do you think so the this is an area again where critical race theory in this case gets some things right and other things wrong. So for example, um, I think what most people mean when they say I, I color blindness, they, they mean it, I treat people regard the same regardless of their race, which is a good thing. It's impartiality that's commanded in scripture. So I, it's not, so critical race theorists would problematize colorblindness. And actually there's a term that was coined by Eduardo Benia Silva in his book, Racism Without Racist. He coined the phrase colorblind racism. And it's actually a phrase he uses because he's arguing that colorblindness is a way for whites to practice racism. It, it's complicated, but basically he would just argue that colorblindness is actually a form of racism, um, which you're like, what? But anyway, what they get wrong is the idea that Colorblindness, in some form, I would argue, is biblical. We are if we mean if we mean being impartial and treating everyone equally well, that's colorblind. That's a good thing. You can't reject that. <laughs> um, what they would get right, though, is that the idea that what we call colorblindness can often be implicitly and subconsciously a way that we assume our culture as the default. A, an example would be something silly like. Hey man, I think I think we should all be colorblind. Why can't we all just get around and sing Chris Tomlin and, and Matt Redmond songs? I mean, that's right. I just want to be colorblind. And you're like, that's not colorblind. You're just what you're calling colorblindness is really the uh, assuming that the white culture is the default culture. That's not colorblind. You have a culture. You're you you. So that's a point well taken. And so I think that while we should again affirm that colorblindness meaning impartiality is good and yet we can think we're colorblind when we're not when we actually imposed our own cultural standard on the church uh, an, an extra biblical standard again it's not it's not wrong to sing chris tomlin songs but it's just not in the bible right yeah. and so if someone else wants to sing different kind of music that's not a sin um and you and, and this is where i think the big solution to a lot of these problems is um is dialogue. So I always recommend my friend George Yancey's book, Beyond Racial Gridlock. So George Yancey's Beyond Racial Gridlock, because his model for racial reconciliation is based on dialogue where you have give and take. So what the wrong thing to do is to say, you know, for, for a, say a, some people of color to come into the church and say, you play nothing but Chris Tomlin songs, it's because you're racist. 
Well, no, it's not because they're racist. It's because that's what they like to listen to. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of Chris Tomlin, but whatever. Okay. Um, that so calling them color, they're colorblind racist. No, that's that's probably that's uncharitable and actually probably sinful. Uh, on the other hand, you don't have a bunch of white people saying, "Hey, we are colorblind. We we listen to good music, not like you guys." <laughs> that, that, that's wrong too. What you need to have is dialogue, where you both assume the best of the other person, and you both say, "Hey, let's listen." both listen so you have one group say hey guys maybe we should try to expand our musical repertoire a little bit because you know there are other songs that we like and that's not in the bible there is no commandment that thou shalt listen to chris tomlin on the other hand the other group says well i think you know if you happen to be living in a majority white area where most of your members are white and like chris tomlin you say well can we have like mostly those songs because that's most of our members but have give and take frankly you know for me personally, I'll say this, you know, I, I mean, I'm weird because I'm half Indian. I, I don't listen to half Indian music and half white music. I don't know what I'm supposed to listen to. But the point is this, I'm taking Paul's commands in first Corinthians very seriously. Where he talks about giving up your rights for the sake of other believers. I have, tr- I have songs that I like in church. I have songs I don't like, but if my preferences are getting in the way of fellowshipping with other believers or even evangelizing non-Christians, I will gladly lay down my rights and my preferences for the sake of the body. I don't see how you can be a Christian and avoid that. Mm. I mean, if you're, if you're going into conversations thinking, well, I have my rights as a believer. I, I have no, 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 no. You need to go back and read first Corinthians and Romans mm-hmm. and say, you're approaching this completely wrongly. Your, your gut instinct should be, how can I give up my rights? Even my rights. Paul talks about giving up his rights in Second Corinthians, but give up your preferences for the sake of edifying others. And, and actually, here's the challenge here. This is going to be really unpopular. That goes both ways. I think people that are in a minority position, whether, by the way, you could be a white person in a minority black church or vice versa. In both cases, you can't go into those situations saying they need to cater to me. No. Every Christian, every Christian should be thinking, how can I serve others? And I'm not saying just suck it up and you know, do, go with majority, but I'm saying go in with the mindset that these are my brothers and sisters. How can we work for the edification of the body? And both sides have that command. I know maybe it's unpopular, but scripture says all Christians should be thinking it that way because Christ thought that way. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I know. So good, thank you. That that's really helpful. The um, thing I was thinking at actually while you're talking about, so part of uh, I've grow, grown up in multiple cultures, but also work with international students in in Guildford, and it's recognizing the differences is really important when sharing the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so it goes back. It's, it's a really simple strategy when engaging with different cultures, and it's as you say, dialogue, but also asking those questions. And so we have, um, we, sorry, just distracted by a moth. <laughs> so we've got these, this idea that actually Christianity is so good at contextualizing itself to the good parts of each culture. And uh, probably the most vivid idea of bad contextualization of Christianity, uh, in my experience, was in Papua New Guinea, on the equator, sweltering hot. And you've got this Bible college teaching pastors that they have to be fully suit and tied. <laughs> and, and so they're preaching in these church buildings that are not 
much more than huts, but they've got corrugated iron roofs. They're just really stuffy because they've they've mixed traditional building materials with modern, and then it becomes a, an air trap rather yeah. than what used to be the case with just traditional materials. And you've got these guys preaching in full suits, and you're like, what? What is that? Yeah, right. Well, that's right. that's the missionary idea of Christianity. Mm-hmm. That's how you preach is a full suit, and it must be here in Papua New Guinea. Whereas, actually, it'd make better sense for everyone to just wear comfortable clothing (laughs) (laughs) because it's so hot and and so there's this imposed idea of modesty it's probably the strongest miscontextualization i think uh when you go into missionary circles some of it's trying to respect the cultures but it overemphasizes that as part of what christianity is um so I, i think just really recognizing that we do all have a culture we in the West have a culture, whether we realize it or not. I think from my experience, Brits are slightly better. I have lived in the States and <laughs> traveled through it. So I, I slightly better recognize that just because we're a small island <laughs> and yeah. and we recognize that um, there are different cultures. Generally, we see them as weird and other languages. We just speak louder and hope people yeah. understand. But there's an, an aspect of we have a glimpse of our own culture and part of my job is explaining to the UK local churches, how we can contextualize the gospel gospel and and find ways that, okay, this is white Christianity Mm. and we need to be careful with this. This isn't, this comes from Augustine. (laughs) It's quite So that's the thing that you have to recognize the other side, which is that there are not, you know, transcultural truths that we have to affirm. So there's a book um, that I read a little while ago. I won't say who the author was, but in the book, she talks about, you know, white churches versus black churches and how they different their organizational structures. And she made this point where she was like, see, in a traditional black, there's a black pastor of a, of a to- like totally half, half white and black church. She talked about how he navigated sort of his church culture in this totally multiracial church. He's a black pastor. But she said at the end, so if he'd been in a black church setting, you know, he and his wife would be sort of like the unquestioned rulers of the church and there wouldn't even be an elder board. And we, you know, that would be a better church for him to have more power as a black man. And I thought that was all she said. She's a sociologist. So she's a Christian sociologist. But I thought to myself, that's not really the question, right? She's asking the, she's asking what would be a better structure to give him more power. And again, she's a sociologist, but I thought immediately, theologically the question is what does the bible command about church structure so you can't just ask these questions like well you know believing in you know the atonement that's white christianity like <laughs> uh no that's christianity yeah. right and you can't say well but there are some cultural traditions that reject the atonement but that's not open to us mm-hmm. yeah we can't culturally accommodate things that are false yeah. same thing with, in, with modesty too yeah, of course, there are different conceptions of modesty. That's totally fine. But, you know, kind of like probably we have to draw the line at like being totally naked all the time. I, 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 <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just throwing out there. I, I haven't thought about much about, you know, nudist colonies, but I'm just pointing out that there are some non-negotiable standards uh, that, that scripture contains, which mm-hmm. have to, which every culture has to be held accountable to. We can't yeah. just get off the hook by saying, well, that's, that's their culture. Yeah. You know, some, every culture gets some things good, and something's wrong. And so we have to be willing to critique our own culture and um, even other people's culture and say, in their culture, this is wrong. You're going to have to 
reform your ideas to that. It both, but and it's very unpopular to say that. But I mean, frankly, I always ask the question: Don't you think that uh, white Southern, you know, you know, super racist Southern culture in eighteen hundred say needed to be reformed and shouldn't say? I mean, Charles Spurgeon, you know, Brit- British preacher, mm-hmm. if he goes to the South and they hated him there. I would not want him to say, well, that's just your culture. I would want him to speak into their culture and say, that's your culture, but it's wicked. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we can't get off the hook by just giving people a pass because it's there. It's cultural relativism. I- I'm sorry. Yep. Some things in your culture got to go. Yep. I think Frederick Douglass did a really good job of, um, I read read his, uh, I can't remember the name of the book. It's his the narrative of Frederick Douglass. And he did a really, um, you know, former slave um sort of his critique, I think the last part of the book was a, a really sort of detailed critique of American white Christianity. Mm. And um, from the lens of someone who believed the gospel, I re- uh, you know, have you, have you come across that? I've not read it now. Uh, it's really, it's a very short book, um, but it's, it's really, really interesting. His story of uh, how he kind of escaped um, slavery um, um you know, taught himself to read and, and, and all sorts of stuff. But his, his sort of critique of American Christianity in the sort of mid-19th century, uh, I think, uh, is very really, really interesting. I think you probably find that quite quite interesting. But um, what I wanted to, to, to get to is, you know, as you were talking about sort of trying to have um, dialogue, like fruitful you know, dialogue with, with people from, you know, speaking from the lens of critical theory, and I think we've 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 discussed this as well for how how the terminology itself gets people's backs up from the outset. Mm-hmm. So you know it, it's it's almost like you know if someone's saying, "Well, you know, you're racist," but don't it's okay. It does. It's not. It's not the racist the type of racism Bad you think racism. it is. Yeah. yeah. Sort of like you know redefining Nazis. Like, you're a Nazi, but <laughs> but we've defined it so it, it's it's different to that. But you have to embrace it, and it feel it feels. I can see why people feel like that because it, it feels like, even though I know, even within critical theory, there'll be there there won't be a sort of uh, consistent, consistent view of this. But it feels like you're being attributed from a, a using theological terminology, like they're attributing like guilt and shame to you mm-hmm. for something based on attributes that you can't change. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like there's any pathway to redemption out of it. Other than all I can find is um, sort of penance through through anti racism work. Yeah. So it's sort of like embrace embrace critical theory, just yeah, embrace it all, and then work to kind of you can't even undo it because you can't work your way out of it. But because um, even that would be you know you, you could work your way out of it, but it doesn't seem like there's any endpoint. Any there's any no end point, any no, no. The lifelong. So yeah. I mean, what you're, the dynamic you're seeing is accurate. Now, the tricky part is, like you said, people will say, well, are you being held guilty for you know, being white, say, or being male? And they will generally say, generally say, no, 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 no. When we call you, so Robin D'Angelo, again, number one bestselling author, would say, look, very clearly, in theory, <laughs> she would hmm. say, you know, when I say that all whites are racist, that all whites are complicit in white supremacy, that you have deeply racist patterns, a deeply racist worldview, when I say all that to a white person, and she's white, by the way, when I say that, I'm not saying you're bad. You can't control that. You're, you're socialized into racism. You're socialized into these deeply racist ways of thinking. This is how you react. 
you can't control it. So I'm not calling you, when I call you a racist, I'm not calling you a bad person. You say, okay, that, I guess, sure, whatever. But then it's just, but, but now that you know, you have to begin to do the work. That's the phrase that's used, do the work of unlearning racism, of, of educating yourself, of doing better. This, uh, uh, and she'll say it's a lifelong process. Uh, and she'll never, she will say that she is still racist, that she has to constantly correct and unlearn these patterns that she's always have with her, but that being an anti-racist is a full-time identity now for her. And that's the sort of penance. But as you can see though, this is the thing. They'll say, well, see, we're not saying that you're guilty for being racist because you can't help that. But then they'll say, but now you should, you ought to do all these things. And you, in fact, what's more, you need to, if you do, if you say, well, no, thank you. I'd rather not be an anti-racist. They'll say, well, then now you're, now you're in trouble. Now, now you've basically shown your fragility and you're committing to overt white supremacy. Um, so it's a little bit, what they give with one hand, they take it with the other hand. They, they, on the one hand, they'll tell you, they'll assure you, I'm not calling you bad. But then if you reject their message, then they're calling you bad. So I, uh, hmm. I don't want to be unfair in a sense of saying they're not claiming that all whites are evil, but they are using that term like racist, white supremacist, uh, complicity. They're using that term as moral leverage. The example that I use to try to help people see this is imagine I were, uh, you know, I imagine you, that you knew a boyfriend who went to his girlfriend and said, you know, uh, you're deeply adulterous. You have, uh, you, you have patterns of deeply adulterous patterns and thoughts and your worldview is deeply adulterous. Now, I'm not using that term pejoratively. I'm not saying you're a bad person for being adulterous. You are, but I'm not saying you're bad for that. But you need to divest yourself of adulterousness. Uh, and if you don't, you're clearly showing your female fragility. And I can set you on a path right now of I can show you what to read, what to do, what to say, how to apologize to me constantly for your adulterousness. And I can lead you toward the path of anti-adultery, right? You'd say that is emotionally abusive. Like he is trying to gain power and leverage over her. And I don't care how much he protests that, oh, I'm just doing it for your own good. <laughs> he's doing something very, very, it would immediately realize that he's abusive. He's an abuser. And I think D'Angelo is doing something very similar is that she's gaining moral leverage over people by using certain terms that she's redefined that are morally loaded, but that's how she hooks you into this entirely new way of viewing reality. And that people are very, once they get into that, it's very hard to pull people out because they feel like they're on the right side of history. They feel that you, when you point out to them, well, I think this is really a faulty way of viewing reality. They'll say, well, that's because you're fragile. Um, and, and you know, you just can't take it yet. You're still, you're still, you're so deeply involved in white supremacy that you can't even see it. And they'll even say that the funniest thing that what happens is that when you get very, you know, when you get very woke white people telling people of color that they don't understand racism, this does happen all the time. I see it happening where you'll get progressive whites lecturing non-woke blacks on how they don't see, they don't get the, they don't get the black experience, which yeah. you'd think, again, that sounds weird. <laughs> But once you understand critical theory, you see, again, the blacks have internalized oppression. The whites have achieved a liberatory consciousness by listening to and deferring to certain people. Again, among them, ironically, 
Robin D'Angelo, Tim Wise, and other white anti-racists. <laughs> it's so weird. I mean, I think if you were an alien anthropologist and you're looking at it, explain this to me again. You've got white people lecturing black people on why they're white supremacist and why the black person is white supremacist. But that's happening on Twitter. So yeah. once you understand the theory, though, it makes a little more sense. Could you? Oh, come so. I was just going to emphasize that's not just in the race conversation, though. Mm-hmm. Like you, you spotted that with the whole J.K. Rowling. Yes, yes, yes. With yeah. Eddie Redmayne, Harry, uh, I keep calling him Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe, lecturing, <laughs> le- lecturing J.K. Rowling on what it means to be a woman. Yes, is it? And it's so it's, fascinating. It's, and again, yeah. is it? Does it help you understand now that, now that you see the theory? Now I'm sure, I'm sure Radcliffe and Redmayne haven't read a lick of this stuff. Mm. So and that's what I find so ironic. People will say, well, I, I don't embrace these ideas because I've never read D'Angelo. I'm like, mm. and it's in that's the That's not how water, ideas work. Right? <laughs> how it works. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like saying I'm not an atheist because I've never read Hume or Dawkins. You're like, you can be an atheist just by reading, you know, Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. This is the cultural so, liturgy. The, the, yes, we're absorbing mm. these ideas. Um, yeah. Oh, we've, we've talked a bit, Dan, uh, James K. Smith, uh his his stuff about just you just absorb what you repeat and what we're repeating is ideas of uh activists that that's pretty much what we're on repeat and and organizations are being shamed into repeating these slogans and images and so you have the rainbow opted by every single organization in the sun this uh under the sun in, in this month whether you like it or not and it's not about saving the NHS. It's about Pride Month. And that's that's an ideology that everyone has assumed. And to then counter that, which some churches are, is to be, yeah, I can see that. That's That would be la- labeled hegemonic power or whatever. And how, how dare you as white Christians, because it's most likely white, that's easiest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not that that is actually... Uh, Probably more on the rise in African churches, but hey, we'll, we'll kind of. That's you know, that's a good, good example, Phil. The other great example of that was when the uh, United over here, the Methodist Church, was debating LGBTQ issues, and you had progressive Methodist white press, progressive white Methodist ministers in the U.S. lecturing Black African Methodists about the right way to think about gender and sexuality. And again, now, again, apart from that theory, from theory, you're like, how on earth do you get whites lecturing blacks? Are they supposed to adopt a posture of learning and a posture of listening? And instead, you have these angry white people telling these, you know, stay out of our business, you know, you, you, whatever, you're, you know, you, you yeah. progressive <laughs> black. And I'm like, well, how does that work? Again, it's because if you understand the theory, they would, now again, is this conscious? No, but they would say that the, the the black African conservative bishops have imbibed this again white supremacist heterosexist narrative that were that was foisted on them by the missionaries ages ago that they've still they've internalized now. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's an, an an alien would have a field day trying to understand this this dynamic work. But yeah. on the one hand, you're like we have to defer to to people of color and to minorities and to women. And then the second they challenge you, it's like, no, let me talk, let me, let me white explain to you how racism works or how <laughs> sex and gender work. And it just, it, it, but so for me, like I said, 
reading the book that Dan gave me years ago or told, recommended to me, it was eye-opening because so mm -hmm. much made sense. The, the number one comment I get after giving my talks is once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's everywhere. And you really, it helps you. If I were, if I were a progressive atheist, I would still be fascinated by this framework because I would say it explains what I believe. I, I believe these things sort of just naturally, like from mm. watching MSNBC, I just know these things are true, but it helps me to, to figure out where they came from. I wouldn't be offended. Like if it, when, I, when I hear explanations of, of, you know, my Christian beliefs and where they came from, I'm not offended. Like, oh, okay, that, that explains why I believe these things. It fits into this larger Christian framework. Well, the same thing is happening with critical theory, but I think I find people are very resistant to admitting that actually you're, you're just, you're imbibing these beliefs, whether they're true or not, I'm just telling you where you got them. They don't like thinking that way because they like to believe that they're, they're free thinkers. Yeah. You know, these came out of, these came out of, oh, it's common sense. Ironically, what we're seeing, what, what do you call ideas that are taken as just normal and common sense and every intelligent, enlightened person believes them? What are those ideas called? They're called a hegemonic discourse. So ironically, progressives in our culture have imbibed critical theory as a hegemonic discourse that's taken for granted as normal and universal and common sense, but is really the imposition of a certain ruling class, in this case, critical theorists themselves. <laughs> so very interesting. I, I know we'll probably have a couple of questions of, um, from people people listening. Um, but just, just quickly as well, so even when you use the term, um, you know, we need to, like Robin D'Angelo talking about the work of, of anti-racism, even the term anti-racism is confusing because yeah. it, you wouldn't want to be someone who says, look, I'm, I'm, I don't want to commit my life to, to anti-racism because the, the, the common sense interpretation of that is that you're against one, uh, you know, one racial group um believing their um you know um, supremacy over another uh you know ethnic or ra ra racial group so in that sense well yeah we all want to be anti-racist but that's not what they mean by anti-racism not at all so the so in the so who defines it so i'm sure the word anti-racism probably goes back decades if not centuries i don't even know the etymology but today if you read a book like ibram kendi's how to be an anti-racist which is Again, number one or number two on Amazon. She and D'Angelo were he and D'Angelo were jockeying for number one spot for a while. But the book How to Be an Anti-Racist, number two on Amazon, say right now. But he'll say so for him, anti-racism means way more than just being opposed to racism. In fact, he will the the very way succinctly what it's what it means today is that an anti-racist is someone who's committed to actively dismantling systems and structures which perpetuate racism that's sort of a bare bones definition you have to you can't be passive you can't just say i'm going to be non-racist he says in his book that is an impossibility you cannot just be non-racist you cannot just say I, I reject racism you can't do that in fact he says that doing that is actually a racist act there is no there's either racist or anti-racist and to say that you're non-racist is actually racist so <laughs> He forces, you know, I can give you the quotes. I, I can pull up <laughs> my screen, but that's really there. It's very clear. And then, so not only do you have to be actively committed to dismantling systems and structures of racism in our society, uh, he would say things like, 
It is impossible to be an anti-racist and to be homophobic or, or transphobic. To be an anti-racist is to embrace the fact that you have male privilege, cis privilege, and a gender privilege and heterosexual privilege. To be a feminist is to be anti-racist. To be anti-racist is to be feminist. So to, in his book, he, he's very much seeing this in terms of uh, interlocking systems of oppression. It's an old phrase of like five decades, but the idea is that all of these systems of racism, sexism, classism, heteronormativity, etc., are interlocking. You can't dismantle any of these oppressions uh, individually. They all hang together, and he says that. And actually, if you look at an older book, um, Joseph Barnes becoming an anti-racist church. He's a Lutheran pastor. He says the same thing in his book, that it's an identity we adopt. He actually says we have to be born again into anti-racism. You take it out as an identity. He likens it to being born again in Christ. And that he also says that you cannot be, if you, if you are an anti-racist, you have to be sensitive to things like gender oppression and, and heteronormativity because that's part of being attuned to oppressive structures. So that, that's just some examples of how that term is very clearly being used to mean a lot more than mm. opposed racism. And again, Christians have no idea what they're signing up for. I mean, like you said, if you say, are you anti-racist? Who's going to say no? <laughs> and, 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 but now, so I see people just assume they know what it means and they're afraid to say no. But a better question is always, what do you mean by mm. anti-racist? How are you defining that term? It's always a safer a bet to go with. When it, when, mm. and, and, and unfortunately, Christians don't know what's happening. They don't know what they're signing up for. And so they just say yes. And they get, they read all this literature. And I think before they know it, they are immersed in this very comprehensive worldview. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's so, again, so much there. We could probably have another two hour conversation on some of these things that are really grateful for you taking the time to, to talk to us uh, today. And hopefully people have found it helpful or able to take it into their own context um, and it's just recognizing as you're talking, there's those subtle hints of truth that Christians are, are nodding along with. Like, like when you start talking about liberation, freedom, lifting up the lowly, like we, we want we want those things as Christians. And it, even the, the fact that he's used this idea of being born again. Yeah. But it's it, it's it's not quite subtle when you map it out. But when you're talking about individual things, it is quite subtle. And that's why the, those meanings are so helpful just to go, look, this isn't I, I'm all for preaching against systems of oppression in, in the fact that's that's kind of how Daniel's beasts are. They're these massive empires of oppression that devour humans. And and so we, we need to, as a church, stand up against those those times where people are truly being devoured by these systems whether they no matter their race sexuality creed whatever the church should be at the forefront standing up and and unfortunately the churches are ending up using terms like social justice mm. and getting caught up in all, all this mess and it's well actually no it's not about dichotomy there's this there's got to be nuance i as a christian can love you <laughs> as a homosexual or black uh, trans transgender person i can support you to have the rights that enable you to live freely and to uh have have the best access to education all, all that sort of stuff but that doesn't mean i need to 
affirm <laughs> all the other aspects that you might call your identity. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some aspects of your identity that, of course, I'll affirm. Yeah, Race is something I can definitely affirm. But where the science is a little bit more <laughs> skew-if, I'm, I'm not so sure I, I can, but I will still love you. And the Christian gospel is that we can have that. And we are, we are hoping for a day where that ambiguity and that nuance is no longer needed because we will have our new bodies and new minds and new everything and, and the uni- unity and diversity. And I, I think pointing back to that colorblindness, there will be difference even in heaven with the different languages that come around the throne of God. So we, we need to recognize that there is difference in culture, but celebrate where we can and challenge where we can't. And I, I think, that's kind of my summary takeaway of, of this conversation. Um, before we go into your summaries, I, I think there are some questions in here. Most of them are about books, which um, which is... Yeah, a, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. I, 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 I was thinking, given, given the time, maybe if, if there are questions, if it's sort of, you know relatively uh, succinct answers and then we can get on i think a lot i think a lot of people are going to want to talk about books which yeah i'm also interested in that there well. is definitely so you've you've got a question dan from yeah so so so, so um to what extent do you think any defense against the advancement of critical theory ideas within the church are contingent upon defending the authority of scripture um make of that of what you will I don't think it's the authority of scripture, the um, or even the inerrancy of scripture. I think that the actual, and even people have talked about it, it's, not, it's the sufficiency of scripture is at, at stake. And I say, no, it's not, because um, what people will say is that these sociological theories like critical race theory are not, uh, they're not, it, it's, I would, if I were defending them, I would say it's like modern medicine, right? We don't think that modern medicine challenges the sufficiency of scripture at all right because scripture doesn't tell you how to combat a virus for example it just doesn't they tell you and so there's no conflict whatsoever um in the same way they would argue uh critical race theory for example is not competing with scripture because it doesn't tell you scripture there's no biblical category for race it's not in the bible ethnicity is in there but race is not race is a social construct it really is that we've developed in the last few centuries as we understand it today so, so understanding how race functions is not competing with scripture. That's what they would argue. Okay. So I don't think that's the primary uh, issue at stake. I think the better place to see this problem is in the perspicuity of scripture, meaning the perspicuity of scripture says that we can understand scripture because God has enabled us. He's written scripture and he's enabled us to understand it. Not everything, right? Because there's, like Peter says, there's some things in scripture that are complicated, but that all people can understand what scripture says in terms of its main message and how to receive salvation through Christ. Um, that's at stake because critical theory in its various forms will say that no, certain people, certain groups are blinded by their privilege, by their social location, and therefore cannot see truths that are relevant to moral issues like oppression. So we would want to say, no, that is not the case, that while we can, I mean, everybody can, ha- can have some tendency to blindness and some blind spots, yes, but we don't solve that by just assuming that one group is wrong and the other group, group can see and they have the truth. We can't do that because that makes it impossible to challenge anyone's interpretation when it's coming from a certain group. You can just say, that's your white Western male interpretation 
and that's blind. And so I'm giving you the right interpretation and you can't challenge that as a white Western cis hetero male. That's deadly. So I think we have to insist that yes, we all have, bi- all, we all have biases, we, but we all believe that scripture is both authoritative and understandable, comprehensible. Hmm. And we all need to sit around the table on an open Bible together and, and make a case why our interpretation is correct. We dare not give any one group this complete authority to teach us what scripture actually means. I mean, gosh, we're, we're Protestants. I think we're all Protestants here. Yeah. We do. We got, didn't we get past that idea that there's some priestly class that can interpret solely interpret scripture for us. We're not, we can't do that. We can't go back to that. And so I think we might think it's noble to say, well, we want to hear the, a woman's perspective on scripture. We want to hear a, an Asian or a black perspective on scripture I would say I want to hear the true perspective on scripture. And we only find that by holding everybody's interpretation up to the Bible mm. and asking who's making the best argument. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's really valuable. And just the exegesis, the reading of the Bible shouldn't be done solely by an individual. Yeah. We, the, the Bible and the gospel is community and we need to be reading the Bible in community. So I, I think that's often missed in, in Western circles anyway. Just if, if you've got an idea about the Bible that is different from everyone else's, then it's quite likely it's been thought about in 2000 years and is also possibly wrong. <laughs> well, and, the, and the community, not just uh, horizontally, but in, over time, right? We, mm. we go back to what other Christians in totally different history, historical contexts and cultures have said. So, yeah. you know, I'm gonna, I mean, yeah, there are many examples here, but if you can't find your interpretation of scripture anywhere for the last 2000 years, it's probably like, is it probably wrong? Yeah. It doesn't matter whether, you know, where your social location is today. If it's, it, if it's totally new, then yeah, I, I'd, we're reading it in the community of the saints, meaning yeah. here today and also for the last 2000 years. And, and if Ecclesiastes is right, there's nothing really new anyway. So it's yeah. probably a, a and, and I imagine there's some of that, if you dig deep enough, some of the critical theory, you could probably find bits and bobs in other other philosophies. So uh, just another question uh, I've got. I think, I, think it's a, I think we've answered it, but if you've just got anything to add, do you think it's possible for racism to be eradicated according to critical theories, definitions of racism? I just finished an essay by Richard Delgado, who actually says we have to consider the pies of critical race theorists. He says, we have to consider the possibility that nothing can be done to eradicate racism. It's a permanent feature of their society. He at least broaches that possibility. So there is a, a pessimistic streak within critical race theory that would say it's just a, it's like gravity. You can't get rid of gravity. You might be able to like make more ramps and, and, and lessen its effects, but it will always be there. And the persistence of racism is actually one of the, I say the primary tenet of critical race theory. It's always here it'll all it's been here and it hasn't it hasn't gone away uh ever uh, in the u.s at least and yeah so there so that's an opening question some critical race theorists are more positive about it but there's certainly elements uh strands of it that would say it's impossible it will never happen so yeah i, I think i could actually agree there like as a christian I don't. It's I don't. Sin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I mean, Jesus yeah. even said the poor will always be with you, but we're right. we're still called to 
obviously fight against racism and sin as, as church and as Christians where it exists and where those solutions are, are possible. But yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. That even in their own framework, it's always going to be going to be there. Dan, do you have another question or shall I go on to the YouTube? No, go on to YouTube. Yeah. So uh, that's a book. We will get to the books promise. Um, so we've, we've tackled one where there's sort of an assault on Christian orthodoxy. Do you feel there's, any areas that we've, I mean, it could be unpacking a whole other can of worms. Uh, there, if there are three key areas, let's just summarize, three key areas in the church that people should be aware of, of where critical theory is, is really um, maybe even subtle, like this almost starting point of where it enters a church. What would those three areas be? I mean, right now, the number one area is race. I think because we, uh, in America at least, we're so ashamed of our our sordid history of racism in the U.S. I mean, our, our country really was a racist, white supremacist nation for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think it's, you shouldn't, don't, don't, deny, it's silly to deny that. Mm-hmm. Go look at our laws. I just read a quote from John C. Calhoun, just is so horrifyingly racist. It was just like, whites are superior to these black savages and we're going to destroy it. So it was just like, just over the top. So to pretend he was, a, I think he was a senator. I mean, I don't remember what exactly his, his role was, but he was a major figure that Yale's Calhoun College is named after John Calhoun. But there were these just horrifyingly wicked statements made by sitting senators and presidents and all kinds of things. There's no point denying that. Uh, you know, obviously, I love being an American. I think this is an incredible nation. Uh, you know, but but I think that we shouldn't pretend that our country's history is better than it was. Um, we had good principles that we failed to live up to, right? I mean, because we're sinners. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, so I, because of that, because we have this history, because of the presence today of racism, still, uh, Christians are rightly looking for a solution. And so, when they hear critical race theory presented as the solution and the the smart way, the intelligent, scholarly way to think about race, they're like, just, yeah, let's do it. They have no idea what they're getting into. So race is the biggest area right now. Then, but race, gender, and sexuality. So race, you know, is the biggest one. But gender, again, through uh, even going back second, third wave feminism, uh, we've, we're familiar with that discourse, I think, but it's, ob- uh, so, but it's still present. Uh, and it's certainly feminism, second wave feminism is a critical social theory, draws on these very same themes of oppression and justice. Um, and then that's, that's, but that's merged as we're seeing with J.K. Rowling and, and the, the, all the, the conflict there, that that's merging with, again, the area of sexuality and gender. And I, I would argue that all three of these areas, have, the scholarship has really converged. So you will not find very many contemporary critical race theorists, anti-racists, uh, feminists who disagree, right? I mean, even Rowling, if you look at, was it Rowling or Rowling? I don't know, but Ro- if you we look said at Rowling, but go for it. Okay. Oh, well, you're British. You should know. Right? <laughs> but JK Rowling, if you look at her writing, it's super progressive. It's super, super, super embracing all of these modern mores mm. surrounding sexuality and gender. She just draws the line at saying that, that trans women are actually women. It's all she's saying. And yet she's, a complete pariah mm. but that just shows you how um these areas are are really congruent and i can it goes back to you can look back at black feminism people like bell hooks emphasizing how they are interlocking you can't pull them apart 
And so I, well, I think that again, race, class, race, gender, and sexuality are those three areas. You really can't extricate them within this framework. If once you adopt this framework, you you're viewing them all the same way. Um, interestingly, uh, a guy named James Lindsay, who you might know of, he's a, um, a, an agnostic, a lib- left of center guy politically, but he's radically opposed to critical theory. And he's writing a book called Cynical Theories with his co-author, Helen Pluckrose, who's uh, from the UK. It'll be a great book, I think. I'm looking mm. forward to it. He's a, a walking encyclopedia. But um, he points out that you're already beginning to see that queer theory and critical race theory are beginning to conflict weirdly. And the reason is, if you understand the theory really well, they both believe that race and gender respectively are social constructs. They, believe, they both believe that but they are theorized in opposite ways. So the way that queer theorists want to get rid of or want to um, solve gender problems is by dismantling the notion of gender, right? Gender is all a social construct. We have to just overturn it and get rid of it. And uh, they call call it queer different norms. They they queer different uh, groups. They queer different categories. They want to show it's all arbitrary, right? But even though critical race theorists view race as a social construct, I think that's correct, by the way, uh, but the, their approach is we have to make race super important, right? We, like being transgender is completely the way to think about gender, but being transracial is completely forbidden. You can't be transracial. So they're theorizing these two different social constructs in opposite ways, and it's beginning to lead to conflicts. Uh, so the, and anyway, we can talk about that, but... Mm. It's like the gender critical feminists and the, the queer theorists beginning to conflict, like Rowling and you know the trans activists are really at one another's throats. Well, not Rowling. She, Rowling is very, very charitable, but, but you can see there even these very progressive people are beginning to see cracks in their, um, their, their allyship. Mm. I think we're beginning to see that with, with critical race theorists and queer theorists, but because again, in this worldview is very much they do eat their own. Um, so, so we'll see what happens. Will they eventually just unravel? Like, um, you know, because we can kind of say, you know, all right, well, you know, this is really going to disrupt the church and it's going to, you know, it's going to worm its way in and, and start eating the church on the inside. Or is another option that actually within 10 years, um, it would have just eaten itself, you know, it would just sort of self-destruct because of these sort of internal inconsistencies. And, and, um, is, is that, is that something that, that, that... yeah, I don't, I, I don't want to speculate. I, I don't think we, I, I remember like, um, four months ago, people were saying, you know, will COVID finally destroy wokeness because people are finally waking up and saying, Hey, I mean, people are dying. There's all this crazy stuff about white supremacy and whatever. It's just, people are literally dropping dead. So it's all kind of rubbish. But we saw what is, that's completely wrong. That, that narrative was so naive. So I don't want to speculate about what's going to happen in the future. We, I don't think we know. What I would say, though, is that uh, I, I do think, I think it's a fad. I mean, these are all these things are in their intellectual fads, like the emergent church, like postmodernism. It's an intellectual fad, but intellectual fads have casualties. So you mm. look at, see, the emergent church, it did go away more or less and just kind of morphed into critical theory. But lots of Christians, lots of churches, lots of denominations were eaten alive by it. So we shouldn't just say, ah, oh, it's a fad, it'll go away. Yeah, but it'll leave in its wake, you know, millions of, of bankrupted, not, not, not 
financially, but spiritually bankrupted Christians, spiritually destroyed Christians who've embraced it and walked away from the faith. So mm. whether or not we think it'll go away on its own, it's irrelevant to how we address it today. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's that's really good. I we've we've got a few people just commenting, uh, kind of adding to the conversation. Uh, Joshua Edwards says you cannot hold a narrative which condemns people on the basis immutable characteristics and not contradict Christianity. Which I think, uh, yeah, if your foundation is something you can't get over, then yeah, you're you're contradicting Christianity itself. Someone's just congratulating the the point, fascinating point about conflicting social constructs. Um, and there's a quote from Eric Fromm, Escape from Freedom. Are you a, a, aware of that book? I know who he is. I haven't read the book, no. He, he's, yeah. uh, and he's part of that critical tradition. Yeah. Okay. So he's put a quote, from the standpoint of man, however, this Adam and Eve eating the fruit is the beginning of human freedom. Hmm. Acting, against oh, God's right. yeah, yeah. acting against God's orders means freeing himself from coercion. Yeah. Uh, so yeah we're under god's oppression so <laughs> we, we need to free ourselves which is yeah I and mean, that's definitely going back to yeah that, that's not a new thought under under the sun is it nope. <laughs> sounds of... like something the snake would say yeah, yeah that's it yeah it's kind of right in the beginning um that's most most of the questions from the chat um and i, I think we've hit the record now of our long form podcast at two hours 30 i think we beat our podcast with glenn scrivener um and uh i think i'm at the point of of my limit <laughs> so, so just two, two two more quick questions yeah, and then no, we're we, done we, yeah so we don't skip over because everyone's yeah. asking about books dan what's your question um so what what three books would you would you would you recommend christians read uh regarding regarding sort of critical theory so you want primary sources or uh yeah, I mean, maybe it'd be good to have, if we said four, like maybe two, two we should read, you know, as we were talking about the benefits of, of reading, stepping outside of our confirmation bias, maybe two, two books we should read that pr promote critical theory, mm -hmm. and maybe two books that, that might um, you know, equip us to kind of uh, navigate, navigate it. Yeah, so the, uh, the, probably the best source for what, you know, this contemporary critical theory we're seeing today is uh, Sensoy and D'Angelo's book, Is Everyone Really Equal? Sensoy and D'Angelo, Is Everyone Really Equal? It's not a hard book. It's not challenging. It's accessible, but it will lay out all of these ideas very clearly. So Sensoy and D'Angelo, Is Everyone Really Equal? Um, the second book I think I would read, just because it's popular, um, it might be, since you've already read D'Angelo, uh, try reading Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. So Ibram X. Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Incidentally, he does sort of strike out on his own. He does differ from other critical race theorists in terms of how he defines racism. It's interesting. Um, but you'll see pretty quickly that he does very much uh, embrace this idea of oppression and interlocking systems of oppression. So he's not, he's not going to be completely uh, on board with what critical he's not really a critical race theorist he's applying critical race theory uh, i think he's a professor of african american studies um but you'll see very quickly that these same themes come up uh in his book and it's very very well it's very popular right now so it's worth reading um and then for two books that would give a different perspective i always recommend dr george yancey's beyond racial gridlock he actually it's written it's an old book so he doesn't address critical race theory specifically, but he addresses four secular models for racial reconciliation. 
He talks about the the pros and cons of each. And one of them is what he calls the white responsibility model. That's what his name for it is. But it basically is derived from critical race theory. Um, and so he talks about the pros and the cons of it. And then he proposes a, a, a fifth model, his own, which is based on dialogue. So, but it's a very good book to, because he, 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 he frames the four models both in terms of what's good about them and what's bad. He doesn't just chuck all the models. He says, well, here's the good side, here's the bad side. So colorblindness, for example, he'd say, there's some good things about colorblindness and other bad things. And so, but he points out both, it's very balanced. And it definitely is a biblical approach. I don't think I agree with him on everything he writes, but I think that it's really much more biblical than what you see uh, within critical race theory. And then, and he's, a, he's an evangelical Christian. And then the last book, I, I, I have to unfortunately do this, but I recommend my own booklet with Dr. Pat Sawyer. Um, and I wish I didn't have to, because people will always say, you know, what's a good book that addresses critical theory from a Christian perspective? And I, I just have to say there isn't one. There, I wish I could tell you, just read this. I mean, Douglas, oh, so Douglas Marie's Madness of Crowds, he's an uh, atheist agnostic from the UK, he's a journalist. It's a great book about the manifestations of critical theory. He doesn't talk about the theory at all. Lindsay and Pluckrose's Cynical Theories, it will be released in the fall, I think. Another great book that'll examine the theory behind the critical theory. That's going to be a great book. But again, it's not a Christian book. And so uh, Pat and I are writing a full-length book right now. Excellent. But until then, the only book that I know that takes apart critical theory biblically from a Christian perspective is our booklet published by Ratio Christie. It's online for free. Um, so it's called Engaging Critical Theory and the Social Justice Movement. You just Google Engaging Critical Theory, Neil Shenvey, and you'll find you'll find the booklet. It's not lots, 32 pages. It's short. So that would be a good resource. And again, I, I really wish I didn't have to plug myself because I, mm. I would love for there to be a full length book, but there isn't one. Well, you've got we'll, to start somewhere. <laughs> I, we'll, I think, we'll put a link up for that. Yeah, we'll put that in the description. I, I haven't come across that yet, so thanks for, for sharing that. There's just um, one question just on, on resources, just because it's quite niche. Um, is, is there anything you'd recommend specifically for or any of those that you've just said that are specific to um, the, in, the, the wording infiltration of critical theory into universities? Uh, with the, the, so... Du yeah, Douglas Murray's book, The Madness of Crowds, he gives tons of examples. He doesn't name it as, I don't think he ever names it as critical theory. No. Um, but he, it's clearly, he's talking about this, whatever you want to call it, cultural Marxism, identity politics. I think in the UK, they call it identity politics. I'm yeah, not sure why. That phrase, yeah. yeah, Justin Byerly titled a podcast we did with him, Identity Politics, whereas me and Lindsay and Esther O'Reilly would talk about critical theory. I don't, I don't know, Does it, but there's no good name for it. But he gives example after example of these ideas in culture and in universities, and they're really just shocking. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a very well-written book. It's really good. So Douglas Murray's The Madness of Crowds. Um, in terms of people that are just in the university, you know, I've, I don't even, I haven't read this book, but uh, Haidt and Lukianoff, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, uh, their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. It might be in there. Again, I haven't read the book. I don't know, but I've read the essay by the same name. And it does, again, touch on similar themes, not looking at the theory, but looking at how they're manifested in the university. They're, they're more focused on the mental health crisis and victim, sort of victim-centered culture. Um, but 
but it might be might be relevant and it definitely is about universities so mm. i imagine they would touch on this a little bit but i haven't read it so i can't tell you more but yeah and the is a great book yeah it touches like the coddling american mind touches on some of it but i wouldn't not from the sounds of the question it probably wouldn't answer the okay. i think the best one is the madness of crowds which i think is a is an, okay. a, an excellent but again, book what, when Lindsay and Pluckrose's cynical theories comes out, yeah. I think it'll. I think. I think. I. I don't. I haven't read it. I don't know. But I've. I've followed them online and yeah. dialogue with them, and they. They know their stuff, so yeah. they're incredibly well read. That'll be an excellent book. I'm adding that to my Amazon as soon as I finish with this. Um, so last last question. So if there are, and they don't have to be Christians, um, but if there were three three people that Christians should know about, but they might not know about, who who might they be? In terms of critical theory, it doesn't have to be any, any, anything. It could be apologetics, critical theory. Um, you know, um, I mean, you just mentioned Helen Pluckrose and, and James Lindsay. Um, maybe they'll be in there, but just kind of three thinkers, maybe that that Christians maybe should know, but but don't necessarily know. Gosh, that's a good question. I mean, un unfortunately, I'll be colored by the fact that I've been swimming in critical theory for like two and a half years now so it's gonna be all <laughs> uh, they're probably if i step back and think about it more carefully there'll be other people i list um things that you, people that you haven't known or heard of i mean obviously people like c.s lewis like well, yeah, okay. mm. um i think yeah james Lindsay is a good one to follow because he does he, he's he's not a christian and he is very confrontational on twitter um but he i follow him because i think he in he's a walking encyclopedia of theory his website new discourses he um has an entire encyclopedia he's building called translations from the wokish where he's trying to explain to you different terms like white supremacy racism hegemonic power discourse all that kind of so he'll explain that to you um it's a good a good resource uh, it's that website's not yet super scholarly it's more at a popular level but it's I, I, what I've read of it, he does get the theory right. I and mean, he knows it. He just doesn't put it on the website. Um, so James Lindsay is one. Uh, what's another good thinker to know about? Um, I, should go, I should pull up my Twitter and see who I follow. Mm -hmm. uh, I think actually Jonathan Haidt, another non-Christian. Oh, I recommend, yeah, Righteous mm -hmm. Mind is brilliant. Righteous Mind, yes. The Righteous Mind is the book that I've read of his. Uh, and it's excellent. It explains to you uh, which moral levers are being pulled or levers since you guys are British. My wife went to a British school. So occasionally I will catch myself, you know, spelling things the British way or whatever, but um, I appreciate it. I feel affirmed. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> the right way. The right way. <laughs> so Jonathan Haidt will tell you which, which moral levers are being pulled by these theories. So why is it so appealing and, uh, and understanding why, say, and this is not pejorative, but why progressives and conservatives are really operating in two different world universes. Mm. What conservatives think of when they think of morality is just different than what progressives think about. You know, I'm a conservative. I, I don't, this is not pejorative. He, sa he says that conservatives have sort of five different moral axes, things like sanctity, uh, you know, obedience, loyalty, in addition to things like harm and caring and justice, but conservatives see all of those attributes as contributing to morality, whereas progressives basically have just two axes along which they evaluate moral issues, which is like 
care and harm and fairness. That's it. So when you try to appeal to progressives about issues of sanctity, they just, they're like, that's, that's a made up concept. They don't understand why sanctity would be a moral virtue. And it's not, again, it's not pejorative. He's just saying as a sociologist, he explains a ton and it's helped me to understand also for apologetics purposes, how do I explain to progressives what's wrong with some of these ideas? Because if I appeal to sanctity, they'll say that's just nonsense. Actually, I had a progressive tell me, I was trying to explain to him why I viewed a certain issue a certain way. And when I said, you know, hi, I understand that from your perspective, you don't understand appealing to sanctity as a moral virtue, but I see it that way. And he said, yeah, but it's only because you're a bigot. And I said, well, see, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I, it's, I, I have to speak the language that he understands. And so when you frame some of these issues in terms of harm, then suddenly progressives can hear you. But if you mm. appeal to categories they don't even recognize, good luck with that. It's like trying to tell people about, about you know, try to, and this is not pejorative, but if I had to explain color to a colorblind person, it would be a really hard to do that because they just don't see things the same way you do. Mm-hmm. So, and again, that's not my language. That is Heights language. Don't get on me for being a bigot now. <laughs> the that's information good. to you. Yeah, um, cool. Definitely recommend it, Height as well. Hmm. So Height and and then I, yeah, I guess I guess since we're doing critical theories, I I do I love Douglas Murray's book, um, hmm. the the Madness of Crowds, and he it, it's it's just a very well written book. I you know I've been told that he is a white supremacist, nationalist, mm-hmm. bigoted, whatever. I have no, I can't even comment on that. All I can say is I like the book. Yeah. <laughs> and in that book, I thought it was just it was very humanistic it was not at all angry it was very calm and rational um but i think he raises very good questions and he in the beginning of the book he talks about how you know we're in this cultural minefield where you you're you can't ask certain questions lest you trip on the tripwire and blow up and it's like my goal in this book is basically to to walk across the minefield and step on every single mine to clear a path so we can at least ask these questions mm. and my goodness he does that <laughs> he steps yeah. on, he puts his foot firmly on every tripwire so that you know because he's hoping that by diff, by by setting off the mines we can now talk about these issues without being called uh, you know and he has a little bit of leeway because he is a, you know a, a very openly gay man mm. um and so he yeah. has a little bit of like you know ability to talk without being labeled a you know a homophobe although you know he still is but um, anyway but it's, it was a, yeah. i really thought it was a good book and it definitely shows you a lot of these issues as they are being manifested in our culture today so for those for those who haven't come across douglas murray there's two two names actually i might drop just to recommend them as people who are on the other other side of the fence so to speak so uh, alex o'connor also known as cosmic skeptic mm. interviewed douglas murray and uh it was a fascinating conversation just to hear because Alex is very good at a very good interviewer and just presses Douglas harder, I think, than, than he might have expected. And uh, the conversation back and forth was just really interesting. So as a thinker on the atheist camp to watch out for Alex O'Connor is just mm. really clear thinker. I'd love to have a chat with him, but I think he'll just, chew us up and spit us out <laughs> he's, just, uh, he's a young guy but he's 
he's definitely on it. And then, um, yeah, that was a, a really interesting conversation. So Douglas Murray's book went up on my list, uh, sort of higher priority after that interview, just to, just for a really interesting conversation between the two. And I think it was out fairly early into, no, it's, it's probably late last year when it came out. I'm not sure. But Google Cosmic Skeptic, I'll try and put a link into the description as well. Um, I'm aware that we're at two hours, 46 <laughs> minutes, and uh, <laughs> I need to make myself comfortable, so to speak. So I will, shall we wrap this up? Is there anything else that we, we can finish off with or, or we're just, we're happy to kind of end it there? Yeah, I just want to say, yeah, really good to, to chat with you, Neil, and I'm sure everyone listening has uh, appreciated your, your insights into it. And uh, I guess we'll have to get you back when you and Pat Sawyer come out with your uh, with your book, absolutely. So yeah. uh, maybe we'll get Pat on as well. Yeah, yeah I'd enjoy that. Him three would too. Yeah, we'd definitely. We'd, we'd love to to have that. Thank you again so much for for your time and and uh, it's <laughs> you probably are a very busy person to give up this amount of time. So we greatly appreciate it. And uh, for all those watching, thank you. I hope you found it helpful. Uh, seeing your agreement in the the live chat has been encouraging. So if you do like what you see, please do like, subscribe, share. Uh, hopefully this is helpful for the church. And, um, and if you've got any other ideas for the, how we can continue this conversation, please do uh, get in touch. We're setting up a website. We've got Facebook. We've got Twitter. Get in touch. We're, we're keen. We just enjoy this. This is a, a bit of a hobby. But there are some people we want to get on who actually we want to support their ministry um, so if you'd like to see more people who, whose ministries actually really need the money, <laughs> uh, please do support the Patreon account that's in the description, uh, patreon.com critical witness. Um, it's not going to us personally, uh, it's going to potentially equipment, but in the long run it's, it's more for getting people on who, who we need to compensate for their time. So again, thank you. Cheers all. And, uh, we'll end it there. So have a good rest, good rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please like, subscribe, share. We're on all your major social media, apart from Instagram at the moment. Please do get in touch. We'd like to hear what you thought. And if you'd like to support the show, find us on patreon.com 